Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this, our 200th episode, we discuss three distinctly different films as decided by our three hosts. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 200 of Film Tank. Ooh, we made it. We made oh, it. Okay. Wow. Looks like we made it. It's oh. taken... A little over four years, almost four and a half years. Holy shit. We have made it to episode 200. We're so old. That voice that feels that we are so old is Tucson Egan. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thank you very much for being here, as always. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Well, I'd like to say we all had you. Oh, I appreciate that. Also, here's Nick Who's Chaney. this guy looking at us? Nick Cheney, also here with us. Hey, thanks. You're welcome. Aww. Also glad that we had you. Oh. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So, again, we did make it to episode 200. Uh, it's been definitely a, uh, I wouldn't want to say long road, but uh, we've had a lot of episodes and a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, episodes on different kinds of movies, mm-hmm. and we've had some episodes on television series what? and television seasons, uh, and and all kinds of sorts of things. Yeah, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, some I was thinking about earlier today um, was just I, I don't want to say like everyone's like favorite memory, mm. but. Um, I'm very interested, and I'm putting everyone on the spot. So I was going to say, do you have one to, ready to go? So that way, me and Tucson can think about it. Sure. Okay. So I was going to lead into just a film tank memory that is maybe the fondest thing that you think about when you mm. think of this podcast. It doesn't necessarily have to be your favorite episode or your favorite joke that somebody said on it, but just something that you remember from doing this podcast over the last four plus years that Mm -hmm. makes you think back and think, Oh, I really enjoyed that. We do this. I enjoy, we do it every week, but at the same time, um, that was something that I really look back on and really enjoy. Yeah. And I will say for me, um, my favorite memory of film tank actually comes early on in our existence. Uh, and it's actually when we all went and saw Jurassic World together, oh, believe it or not. Man. The first, the first one, World. the okay. one directed by Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, yeah, not the absolute shit one. That, that was fun, too. Yeah, that well, was fun. That was a different kind of fun, <laughs> I guess. Um, but the when we started this podcast and the first you know 20 episodes or so we did with Kenny, mm-hmm. as uh, there were four on here, and now there's, for the most part, three, although we have guests pretty frequently, I would yeah. say. Um, you know, when we started doing the podcast, uh, 
we were really trying to find exactly what this was going to be. What our rhythm we? was going to be. Yeah, sure. Um, and and not to say anything. <laughs> We've got it down. I know. We still make random noises because people are just I like to play with my coaster. Holding onto coasters and You know what? I don't them. have a drink. That's why. So I'm <laughs> do, you so to, do you want me to get you a drink? <laughs> Thank you, Toussaint. I don't need one. I don't have a problem. Okay, that's fine. Okay. But clearly. Continue, Alex. Anyways, what I was going with that is that early on, um, we I feel like did a lot more of going to films as a group right. and focused on it being like an event. Like, we are going to see Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. We're going to see Jurassic World. And we were all four years younger, Did so... Did we start this after we graduated from college? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I couldn't remember. Uh, but at least for myself and Alex and Tucson, actually, mm-hmm. I don't believe any one of us was full-time employed no. when we started this. No, so, I, I was not. Yeah, no. as was I not. And that <laughs> plays into this, I'm sure, as well. Um, I do know that I used to spend a lot more time editing these episodes, if <laughs> anyone has been paying attention. Yeah, yeah now uh, they suck. They're great, I'm Alex. You can say that because ever since episode probably like 30, <laughs> I've tried a lot less harder. Which, <laughs> okay. you know what? Honestly, when I listen back to them, which I've been doing recently, as mm-hmm. we've now caught up, and it's fun to see the whole repertoire and mm-hmm. at, the, at my fingers, uh, I got to say the equipment that we bought as provided, well, not provided, but as... T- directed by you as to what and whatever pretty much in my opinion do the heavy lifting and that make this sound like a pretty professional recording no yeah. i think i mean your editing is not bad either i'm just no, saying like it's it's kind of funny how little work we have to do to make it sound like what it sounds like no, i think overall you know we made a lot of good choices when we started doing the podcast i think i, I remember the first maybe Six or seven episodes we did with the original microphones we bought. <laughs> oh, yeah, those were awful. Which are still in this room. They are. We yeah. never. We didn't trade them in or anything. They were just discarded. We should yeah. burn them. We're <laughs> even thrown away. They're yeah. just still just here as. Scrap I mean, I guess it's good to have a backup. Well, yeah, but it pays to make a strong investment on the out- outset of something like this because, like, uh, like Nick said, like we've very much not needed to like do a whole lot of like heavy lifting a lot of work even though it's alex who does like principally a lot of the um the editing of these yeah these but at, at the same time the audio audio quality i'm saying is like it carries through overall yeah it, it it sounds pretty good and it really sounded again after about like the seventh or eighth episode it sounded for the most part the same yeah uh, content wise maybe better or worse i don't know <laughs> We'll see, yeah. uh, but um, and I guess that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, but uh, anyway, or the ear, or the ear of the beholder, very well. Yeah. <laughs> so, really quickly, getting back to my yes. um, fondest memory over the last you know two hundred episodes, um, when we all went to go see Jurassic World, it was just a good time mm-hmm. uh, getting together, even if uh, that wasn't the greatest movie, and I am a fan of Jurassic World, and I know you both are not huge into it. I know Kenny really enjoys it, too. I mean, I remember being really into it and being very, very enthusiastic on that initial episode, probably because I was drunk and I had eaten, like, barbecue chicken pizza that night, and I just was really just, like, riding that high and just, like, ready to just enjoy these dinosaurs. I was going to say, I think Going back, it just didn't really... I think that plays into a lot of what Tucson... Tucson, A lot of what Nick was just saying... (laughs) 
<laughs> Speaking of drunk, uh, a lot to what Nick was just saying regarding uh, the fact that none of us had full-time jobs at the time. Mm-hmm. I recall going on a Thursday night because we went on opening night to go yeah. see Jurassic World. We went to a theater that serves alcohol, and we all were served alcohol multiple times throughout the evening. That's and when, I, That's when we still did the buckets. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. Did buckets of beer at yeah. the at the movie theater? Yes, and um, from my recollection, most people in the theater were being served alcohol mm. frequently throughout the evening. I would as, hope so, based on the choices they made during the movie. Well, oh and that's God. where I was going. And you know what? And I will say, even if looking back, that is a very mediocre film, even if it's something I enjoy. Um, and this has less to do with our podcast and more just about loving going and seeing movies in the theater. Oh, yeah. Good, bad, or otherwise. Well, it happened um, because of our podcast. Well, that we went to go see it, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, spe- I the, probably the fact- would not. Well, I guess I well, would have. But and the I... fact that we went to all go see yeah, it together right, right. Um, more speaks to that as well, yeah. Nick. But just even if it has to be aided from alcohol, um, people enjoying cinema together and having a communal experience um and even if you don't necessarily believe or agree with the over-the-top enthusiasm uh that other (laughs) members of the audience are showing um that was just a great theater experience and uh definitely one that i always fondly remember of us being together and hanging out and just having a good time and I, i think that's that's really what i've enjoyed most about the last 200 episodes of us doing this is that really it has just been us and other people just having a good time and enjoying Should watching and talking about movies. The guest hosts we've had Ooh, as boy. people. We're not Ooh, boy. Nope. <laughs> oh boy. <sighs> we love all of our guests. <laughs> we love all of our guests. So anyways, um, even though that wasn't necessarily an episode moment, that was uh, definitely a top memory for me. Yeah. So, who wants to go next? Uh, mm-hmm. Nick? Uh, me? Okay. Woo! <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> 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 All right, let's see here. <laughs> um, this has been a fun experience, this little podcast that could. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I describe Film Tank to other people, I basically say it's like a film therapy bacchanalia. You know, clothes off, <laughs> thinking caps on. Um and <laughs> inhibitions off, <laughs> thinking caps on. Yeah, no, but I actually do describe it as like our version of a poker night, which yeah. is that it's l- less of a true film. I don't know spectacle, even though I do like what we have to say and mm-hmm. the things we watch, and more of just a reason to get together. I mean, yeah. like that's what I most enjoyed about it. Yeah. Um. So in that spirit, um, one of my personal favorite moments was not of movie we did uh, on the show, Mm -hmm. but as if anyone has listened to more than one episode has figured out, we always usually watch movies either before or after, and a lot of times they are not the movie, sometimes they are, but Mm -hmm. a lot of times they are not the movie we are covering, but just something randomly that whatever one of us chose, and one of my fondest memories of just getting to watch a random movie with my guys guys. was when we all... Watched uh, Sleepaway Camp for the first oh, time. Oh, my uh, God, yes. Uh, for the first time for, I believe, for you two, at least. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, that was a pretty good mixture. Was it just the three of us? Watching? No, there was a guest. Okay. I believe 
I'm going to probably say the wrong guess. Okay. But my guess was that I believe. Your guess for the guess. No, you know what? I'm not going to guess. Okay. Because. It was um, one of our guests. Yes, we... I do remember a fourth person. Okay. But you should listen back to that episode because I remember distinctly being a very. Um, we didn't do an episode. We didn't do say. an episode on that? I just said that five seconds <laughs> What? <laughs> no, we just. Remember, I just said that. I said sometimes we watch movies that we didn't yeah. do episodes oh, on. Okay, I'm and sorry. This, no, no. And this I remember was, us just having like a really interesting I'm sure we talked about it maybe no, the next dude, week for like Week in Review or something. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm almost positive it's been brought up. It may not have been the ne- next week, though. Now, I think you posted something about it on either Facebook or Twitter, and I remember Brian bringing up that he had seen this when he was younger. Mm, yeah. And I think sounds... it was after we watched it. Yes. So. But I, so I don't think it was him who watched it with no. us. No. Although Brian's been a adamant fan, it may have it may have been Sleepaway Camp, but it may have also been a different. Uh, I think it was horror. Sleepaway Camp. Well, it may have been. Yeah. I was gonna say, but I do remember having fond memories of Brian getting me to watch the movie Blood Diner. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he had mentioned that, so it may have been that as well. Okay. Um, but anyway, just I remember that night being a good night of camaraderie and just enough alcohol where it was fun. Mm-hmm. And, and the uh, ending <laughs> song for that movie slaps. Yes, and yeah. just remember that being a, a good, good old fashioned. Uh, I don't know. Movie night. Monkey shine picture, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So that, I and mean, then I also want to say, just as far as what this podcast means to me, hmm. I know. Um, besides a, an excuse to get together with my pals, my guys, um, but also, I, you know, there is a true character arc uh, to the character of Nick Cheney on this oh, podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you go back four years, I was not the same film viewer, and I would hope that you two are, were not the same either, because no. I think that's the whole point of watching movies and yeah. continuing to watch them. Um, but without the kind of rigorous schedule of something like this where I kind of just felt like I had to start watching a bunch of things that were just not on my radar, whether they be superhero movies or horror movies or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I really started to tap into what I genuinely love. And one of them being the uh, kind of what I, what is now, I feel like reached its pinnacle and just, as exploitation cinema. Yeah. Uh, but the road to that was me watching more horror films yeah. in general, um, probably starting as far back as when we did It Follows. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, because it's not like I had not watched horror films prior, but I hadn't really gotten into Well, the, you hadn't really cultivated a... Um, an appreciation. Or a taste. Yeah. Like, I mean, like you yeah, yeah. knew what you liked, but you just... Yes, I hadn't tried to go outside of what I like, whether it be The Shining or It wasn't or as granular else. as, like, as it is now. No. And also, too, uh, another aspect of that that shows difference just four years can make. Um, I'm pretty sure it was around, but Vinegar Syndrome is definitely not yes. what it is now no. in 2015. No. Shudder, I don't believe, was around at all. That's correct. In Actually, Vinegar Syndrome probably started the exact same year we started. It's okay. basically been in existence for about four to f- no, five years. Uh, it just hit a five-year anniversary. Movie so pass, like, rose yeah. and fell. Oh, it's come man. and gone. Yeah. Oh, that, was, that, was, that didn't take very long I think either. it passed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. no, but, um, you know, those services and other things that have come around and become relevant, yeah. um, you know, just weren't there yeah. in 2015 when we started doing this. And your palette was obviously different then. And yeah. 
you would not have been able to see the kind of things before this at that time. podcast started. I was a Criterion fanboy, mm-hmm. yeah, and like, there's nothing wrong with that because they put out fucking great movies and mm-hmm. great packages. But like, it's kind of funny how it is actually pretty rare that I speak about Criterion these days as an entity in and of themselves. Well, you don't you like still- going to. Um, you don't like going to Barnes and Noble and dropping forty dollars on a Blu-ray? That was just a couple of uh, not this days week because fifty percent off. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I just have started to look outside of what I'm, you know, told is great, and just looking mm. for whatever actually I like. And sometimes those things intersect, and sometimes they don't. And I'm over the idea of, and I'll go back and watch anything that I missed, like if it's a classic, and give it a try. But mm. I no longer feel like, for example checking off all 100 films on the AFI greatest list is any sort of achievement whatsoever. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's without this podcast, I would not be watching what I watch and praising what I praise. And the film that we're going to talk about today that I chose, I bet there's an actual direct causality of if we never started this podcast, I probably never would have watched that movie, and therefore we never would have even talked about it, let alone you know me liking it and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it's been well, a wild trip. And we and this is another of what you're mentioning of just causality of that. I mean, we would I would never have watched the film that you picked for That's today true. at all. Yeah. Never would have heard of it probably. I would never have been able to convince you to just sit down and watch the film that I chose. But I'm really glad that we uh, finally did. Yeah. And it's funny because a film came out last year that was a remake that brought attention back to this film series, I guess. But when we all got together and watched The Star is Born and mm. the uh, the Judy Garland version, mm-hmm. and for the most part, even though Nick had said that he loved it previously, I mean, myself at Toussaint threw rose petals at it. Yeah. One of the very few films that all of us unanimously loved. Yes, sir. I mean... I mean, the one we always go back to is usually Ex Machina as yeah. the gold standard for films that the three hosts actually all enjoyed. Right. But I remember getting together and watching A Star is Born, and I probably would never have seen that if it were not for this podcast. And hang out with you fine gentlemen. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. So, yeah. I, uh, I thank God. Ha! Every day. Hmm. For you two. Aw. The band. Not you guys. Oh. Okay. Um, just Bono. kidding. I actually it's a beautiful you. day. Oh, God. Oh, boy. So, that's anyway. What, that's uh, what Bono actually sounds like now, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Without auto-tune. Uh, yeah. Tucson. So, um, when I think back on all the episodes that we've done and all the fun adventures that we've had in film together, I think that I'm split between two memories. And the first memory that I have is us doing our February Favorites Oh, doing yeah. our favorite films and that it's like I loved that was a watching. Fun month. Yeah, that was a great month. I really enjoyed watching Nick's, which was Magnolia, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed watching Alex's, which was Casino. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed being able to record an episode <laughs> on one of, if not my favorite film, Gattaca. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just a trio of just really great episodes all around. It's like I think that we were able to bring a lot to the table and see what. Um, I guess at the time was sort of representative of like our peak taste at that time. I think it still is. For yeah, me. I mean it's, it's yeah. still like every, every single time somebody asks me what my favorite film is, I tell them it's Gattaca. Yeah, like it's it's just it's always going to be there. There's been um, no contention of knocking Casino off my top spot. Yeah, so. it's like <laughs> it's it's just um, 
that film hits so many different points for me that I can't really, I, I, I can't see another film like toppling it just respective to me. I don't think it's a perfect film, but it's a perfect film for me. Yeah. Um, and my second favorite memory, and we mentioned it very briefly before was, I think that ex machina is probably uh, our ex machina episode is probably one of, if not my favorite memories of this entire podcast. I think that that is um, pretty much the gold standard of like film tank in rare form where we all brought something to the table and we all really enjoyed that film. And it was just, it was just a joy to dig into those performances and to dig into that, um, into that premise that even I, I still listen back to that episode and just think, damn, we did really good. Like I really, really enjoyed that episode. The, the really unique thing about ex machina is that is a basically unknown director. I know Alex Garland is known, uh, for because he was the writer for the Dread remake, right? He was also the writer for Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah, but in terms of being a total director, mm-hmm. he was completely green, right? Um, and not if you uh, listen to one of the producers of Dread. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, at the same time, I feel like that was a very unique experience because a it was early in our podcast existence. Mm-hmm. Um. And at the same time, it was also going into a film and having zero expectations for a filmmaker who clearly has an idea of what they're doing. The trailer looked great. It did, but at the same time... You can never really trust a trailer. And the the other thing is, that was... I don't want to say... I mean, there were plenty of it, but that was kind of like... uh, It wasn't early on, but it was definitely before artificial intelligence became like a staple in terms of theater. I mean, it, it has been for a I mean, long a trend. time. Yeah. But yeah. It, it like become it. There was a time where it would almost became like, not quite, but kind of like how like zombies or vampires were for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it has been for a long time with the movie, like artificial intelligence or minority report or something like that. It was a very auspicious debut that um, tapped into the zeitgeist of ideas surrounding uh, the exponential advancement of technology and just sort of the human dynamics that are sort of like integrated into that. Like even now, like as a text and some of the conversations that actually happen in that film, like I still refer back to them when I am thinking about how artificial intelligence is depicted in other forms of media. Even like Oscar Isaac's character in that film who – like sets up this social media platform mm-hmm. just to create his funding for his real project that yeah, he's doing. Just to just to <laughs> totally um, uh, aggregate all of this um, human information, yeah. even though the government knows that he's doing it and they can't really do anything about it, or unless they'd have to admit that they are also doing the same thing. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. It's horrifying, but at the same time, oh, feels horrifying. extremely realistic. It feels uh, it feels quaint. In retrospect, uh, yeah. yeah. The other thing, though, about bringing up Ex Machina in the context of our podcast and whatnot mm-hmm. is that that's another signpost of how long we've been doing this, which is not like to say that it's been forever, but uh, we've seen, like, since our podcast has started, it's been essentially the era of one thing that's been pretty uh, particularly interesting for film as a whole, which is the rise of A24, mm. and kind of what I would consider this kind of mass marketing of indie films that we haven't quite seen on this level before, which 
is interesting because five years prior that would not that would they were not a thing. I mean, they had started making movies, but that's you know they had yet to win an Oscar. They had yet to really start to lock down their kind of rigorous schedule of like one of these come out like every two months now mm-hmm. in a good way. Um, but yeah, yeah. So good yeah. stuff. I mean, I just talking about the ex mocking episode i mean that's i remember brian telling us you know, years ago that he had listened to that and thought that that was by far our best episode yeah I'm, it is uh definitely been the most cited episode i've ever talked to other people about as far as them bringing it up and yeah. like oh i listened to that episode and i yeah. was like oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah i do um have a great memory uh has nothing really to do with our you know, actual podcast, mm-hmm. but it does revolve around what we've uh, done here, um, and that is just one of the most awesome things. And it was when I was talking with Kenny one day randomly, and he t- and this was I don't know about a year, year and a half ago or so, and he kind of randomly told me, "Man, you guys should really do an episode on Crimson, Crimson Peak." And I was like, "We've done an episode. <laughs> on that. Yeah. You should listen yeah. to it. You don't even have to wait." Yeah, and I was like, "That's awesome." Yeah, where it's we've done so many and well, so. Yeah, yeah, no. There's yeah. another uh, moment that I I remember just off the top of my head. Was it Rocky Four? <laughs> Was it Rocky Four? We talked about this earlier today. Yeah, I know the but, robot. Yeah, the robot. Yeah, it's like it's we, Rocky we, Four. We didn't re- we didn't uh, record that because we were just watching it after the fact. But uh, when we watched Rocky Four together like years ago, I had never seen it. I maybe understood it from uh, reputation that there is this Russian guy that like you know kills Apollo Creed, and then oh, Rocky's got a things have changed Ro- since the first Rocky. Rocky's got a <laughs> Rocky's got to defeat him and like defeat the Soviet Union, whatever. Fuck I off, did, Rocky. I did not know that there was a robot in it at the time. I, I yeah. somehow had just never learned that. And robot so, who's dressed as Santa Claus later and so in the film. When and a I, robot who in real life helps autistic kids. <laughs> that cannot be overstated. That's great. Yeah. Um, I'm not making that up. So when I, no, I'm just the I listeners. When I Google watched that the scene ro- robot for the first time, from Rocky Four and all, I was absolutely shell shocked. I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And I was like, "Wait, no!" And I was just doubled over in laughter, not only from the shape of this robot, the fact that there was a robot in a Rocky Four film or in a Rocky film. You make fun, but, but I'm just... and the, the, even the fucking soundtrack was just so hilarious <laughs> that I was <laughs> I was doubled over on the f- in the floor in a spasm okay. of laughter. Really? Quickly, if I can, I was just my memory was just jogged. I remember another time when oh. you were rolling around on the floor oh, laughing. Oh, don't do this to me. Okay. It was during, we were watching First Girl I Love. Oh my God, don't do this to me. And I recall it not really being a scene where you should be laughing. I like didn't that. really have an accurate read on that <laughs> scene. Okay. That's the truth. Uh, that's the. Yeah, I remember that. And I was like, yeah, I didn't totally understand what was going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, bringing it back to the robot from Rocky Four. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to say, Tucson, if I was a better film videographer, editor, whatever, uh, as a 200th Film Tank episode present, I would recut the movie Ex Machina, where I would put the robot from Rocky Four in every scene that e- Eva is in. Wow. And change nothing else. Wow. So you. Just imagine. Are you attracted that. to me? <laughs> Are you attracted to me, Polly? Oh my god! Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it is kind of horrifying that he changes the robot's voice to be this like very sensual female mm. voice. Yeah, that is really Holly. creepy. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad that uh, we all were able to share some of our favorite moments. And yeah. as we do ask for listener opinions from yes. time to time, if anyone out there has any favorite memories of the first 200 episodes of Film Tank, or well, the next free. 200 episodes. That would be a bigger challenge. But if you have a memory from the first 200 or the next 200, feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Tell us what you do, you know, like while you're listening to these. Are you jogging? Oh, Are boy. you with your partner? Oh, Are boy. you eating a sandwich? Are you driving? No. You are asking for trouble here. So, uh, just to remind anyone who has not previously listened, uh, you know, what was it like nine episodes ago or so? Yeah. Uh, actually, it was 192. Okay, so eight episodes ago. Yeah, so get it right. So, a couple months ago. It was way off. Uh, well, it, it was right. in that ballpark. Um, it was on the episode when we talked about John Wick 3. Um, we kind of went over that we did this random movie decision uh, where each host brought three films and then we generated one of those three films and then we would be reviewing the three films that were randomly chosen then all of which were picked by one of the hosts Um, so we don't need to go in depth about all of the films and why we picked them and everything like that but the three films that we ended up deciding for this 200th episode were the licorice quartet which was decided by nick eight men out which uh was decided by myself and you can do it buddy Oh, dear, can I? Royal Space Force and the Wings of Honmese. <laughs> it was a good attempt. <laughs> oh, I'm so proud of you. Was that close? Yeah, that's close. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we'll we'll get to the actual title of that. How about, uh, how about I say the title next oh, time? Yeah, yeah. I'm done with saying the title of that <laughs> one. I promise yeah, you. That's fine. I, another film tank uh, grand memory is me butchering Asian American and Asians' names over and over and over again because yeah. I am a terrible white person. <laughs> so there's more of that to come over the next oh, 200 episodes, boy. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, uh, those are the three films that we landed on, and each of them uh, was chosen just as a film that the individual individual host, at least, enjoyed very much. Mm-hmm. And also uh, was a film that we probably just would not have suggested um, otherwise to do an episode on. So yeah. uh, we watched all three of the films today before recording. So we have had a long day of watching films, which we very much enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, got to just have another one of those great days of just sitting together and watching movies together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the first one we watched was Nick's Choice, which was the Licorice, Quart- Licorice Quartet, mm-hmm. uh, which, according to I'm... Oh, my goodness. Never mind. I will let Nick give the description, because IMDb has a description. Actually, I kind of want to read yeah, it Yeah, I was going to say, I, I want to okay. know what it I is. Am. It is like two paragraphs. It was so, so it was so bad that you just looked at it, and you're like... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. to be fair, I'd like to hear any description of this film. Okay, so here we go. IMDb. We'll see what this is. Yeah. I have not read this before, but okay. I'm just going to go, and I'm just going to dive right in. I love IMDb. It'd be kind of funny if it was actually like perfunctory and like correct. But we'll see. Continue. Okay, so uh, the IMDb plotline for the Licorice Quartet reads as 
a jaded wealthy couple watch a blue movie in their castle home along with their adult son the sun is testy so they go into town and watch a circus-like thrill ride the daredevil woman in the show looks exactly like one of the women in the movie so the man invites her to join them for a nightcap tensions among the family seem to rise the woman stays overnight and during her 24 hours in the castle each of its three residents involves her in a fantasy she in turn keeps asking who has the gun will there be violence before it's over and that's it <laughs> wow so that is a read that is kind of some I was gonna of say actually what? half of that was correct yeah that's pretty funny. So I don't have really any information on the stars and the director of this because I don't none of these names and they mean nothing to me. I so. know that Nick could probably fill in some of those. And I'm, for us. that's why I was going to say I will let Nick take over yeah. and tell us um, why he picked this film and what he likes about it. All right. Well, I mostly picked this film because it's never it's it's a part of a movement and a genre of film that I understandably uh would say is never going to enter the regular rotating schedule of film tank nope. uh so that's <laughs> <laughs> okay well maybe now i'm gonna advocate for that okay that's fine. i'm just kidding but um and nor would i even want that to begin with but i do think it is a subsection of film that is often uh ignored and overlooked and usually looked down upon and i think the licorice quartet as an entry in the kind of in this case it's euro but just in general the sexploitation movement that made way for the gray legality of pornography that would rise soon after um i just find it to be a fascinating time capsule of the sexual mores that were on display and the way cinema almost used to be, I would say, less prudish about sex than it is right now. Because, in my opinion, sex and cinema falls in two camps nowadays, which is completely, like, blasé afterthought. Like, there's no sensuality whatsoever. It is like a, like, let's say it's in the middle of, like, an R-rated comedy. It is just MacGruber. (laughs) Or, if you're doing, like, a, (laughs) if you're doing a, like, serious art house drama, even there, the only purpose seems to try to, quote-unquote, portray it realistically to the point of being benign <laughs> um and and almost all and it, that's not to say that that there's not acceptance to the rule though that there aren't filmmakers these days who are trying to push that boundary like uh kind of famously a couple of years ago uh park chan wook made the handmaiden which was a very essentially erotic film yeah it's uh, a great film and it's a great movie as well so it's not that there, Even- it doesn't exist but it certainly has gone back in the closet I was gonna say, even a film uh, that was definitely more of an indie film, but a film like The Overnight, mm-hmm. uh, which spends its entire film comedically surrounding uh, the struggles of sexuality, and then ends in a serious, uh, awkward moment with children walking in and mm. uh, being child pornography. Yeah, um, yeah. but anyways, that Stupid. that that's a film that um, I would say definitely does do that, yeah. not literally. Well, no, <laughs> no, not, no, not the child we pornography were ref- Just in case the listener has not listened to that episode, <laughs> yeah. we were referring to a very stupid theater patron <laughs> who believes that if the child was in the scene, i.e. in a 
match cut in which you only see the child in the frame, that that must mean he was watching the adults do the exact same thing that the character the child was playing because he doesn't understand how movies work and are made. He also probably would have definitely thought he got shot if he saw... the fir- one of the first actual films where they had somebody shooting out at the uh, the screen. Which is that from? I'm drawing oh, a blank. Yeah. yeah, or he might have right. been like mowed yeah. down by a, by a train. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so he, we arrive at the Licorice Quartet, and it's at this point. It was made in 1970, and at this it's at this point where nudie cuties and such are kind of a thing of not necessarily the past, but they no longer have any relevance now that we can kind of start to add the sensuality into, uh, you know, movies that most people were watching and whatnot, especially with the uh, burgeoning kind of art house foreign uh, import-export situation going on um, with companies like Janus Films, uh, which were coming to arise now. Bradley Mesker, who directed this movie, uh, is a fantastic director, and I think the wish... The Licorice Quartet is a good example of why. Um, he's famous for two things, which is one, for being a very famous uh, sexploitation director and whatnot, but then also for uh, later on when hardcore pornography uh, became this thing you could do. It, it's almost it's almost weird to say it became legal because that's only a half-truth. Mm-hmm. It just became less illegal. <laughs> um, and when that was uh, blooming, ironically for someone who's so interested in sex filmmaking and whatnot, he dabbled in it, but he only actually made five movies uh, in that genre. And he na- made it under a pseudonym, which was uh, Henry Paris, uh, which was literally just him naming himself after the city he loved the most because even though he was uh, born in New York he pretty much I think always felt at home overseas and not uh, you know here which is understandable and um, uh, he famously made the movie uh, the opening of Misty Beethoven which was which starred uh, Constance Money and Jamie Gillis and that movie is probably if not definitely cited as the greatest pornography film ever made. Uh, and he made oh. it. <laughs> that was one of his five. And it is essentially a Pygmalion-style uh, tale of uh, sex. Ah. You know, it is a, a Jamie Gillis playing the uh, Professor Higgins character who comes and teaches this lowly prostitute how to be an aristocrat in the bed. <laughs> and, um, you mean an aristocrat? Well, I was saying like cat, like you know. okay. anyway. I got you. I just thought of the Disney movie. But okay, <laughs> well, yeah, I forgot that that existed. Anyway, yep. <laughs> everybody. Anyway, wonderful. Um, so uh, that's where he's most famous under a different name, obviously. Uh, so Radley Metzger, and I'll stop talking about him, but I do think he's kind of inextricable from this movie in and of itself. He's called this his most personal film, hmm. uh, but. Interesting factoid that I believe harkens as to why he's a good director and kind of uh, cites some of his influences is that before he founded Autobahn Films, which was his distribution company and film production company, which this was released under, um, he had a job working for Janus Films, the company that would become the Criterion Collection. Um, And Janus Films is still in existence today, but Janus became the sole theatrical side of... uh, you know, importing, exporting, art house and foreign, and Criterion became their, you know, they created that so that they could have a home label. And 
he became uh, uh, a trailer editor for Janice Films. So oh. he was the person responsible for basically cutting together uh, trailers for Ingmar Bergman's and uh, John Renoir and uh, Michael and uh, Michael uh, Antonioni and uh, other you know famous famous and deeply classic uh, foreign films that Janice Films would acquire and show in the states. So he kind of cites that as his film school, even though he did actually go to I believe if it wasn't he went to Columbia, New York, mm-hmm. but that's essentially like where he truly grew to love, uh, shall we say, highbrow art and whatnot. Um, and I think that shows in all of his films and certainly in the Licorice Quartet. Uh, I love the Licorice Quartet. I think it is a fantastic and fascinating movie that I've now seen like five times and it never gets old for myself because while I do appreciate the sexy aspects of it, um, I just think that this is an engrossing play on the kind of permeability permeability yes of film and cinema and um how i mean he kind of famously said that this movie is kind of about the impermanence of film which is that you can make something but then it can never be uh any one thing uh in its totality and in in the totality of its existence you know it's Every time you watch something, even if you've already seen it before, it is a different experience. It is a different thought process. For the fact of you having like prior um, knowledge, prior experience with yeah. that film, and for the fact that you're just a different person in moments later, even if you watch it the next day, you know you're the sum to- the sum uh, total of your events and your past can shape your present. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's it's even less about the like. Well, now that you have prior knowledge of the film, now you know better. It's more just that you can't watch anything the same way again because you're never the same person as you were uh, yeah. in any moment. And I think that's what happens here. And um, but also at the at, on the other side is that this is also a film about sexuality in general. Like you can take this to be how like on the surface. If you take away the meta aspects and the kind of uh, film within a film and whatnot, this is also just a sex film uh, in a Freudian sense. Like, this Mm -hmm. is about three people who have sexual repression of some kind and who live out their fantasy with this interloper um, and what that fantasy says about them and how they relate to sex and with each other. Like, that's a baseline of what you can get out of this movie, let alone the kinkier uh, film aspects of what's happening and and whether this is actually a movie about them or if this is a movie about sex in cinema and whatnot. And the reason why I'm kind of rambling all over the place is because I think that this movie actually invites that kind of spiraling of uh, of a thought process where it, it is a kind of Russian nest... Uh, Matryoshka doll. Yeah, of, of ideas and of how they're the chicken and the egg and how... There's no right or wrong answer, and this is kind of where does it start and begin? Is it is this a movie about sex? You know, is is human beings only <laughs> only thinking about sex at the end of the day, or are we bringing everything back to sex because that's you know that's what we think? And um, I don't know. I just think it's a fascinating movie. And before I even start talking about any like quote unquote the plot or whatnot, I'd be curious to know what you two thought, especially coming into this, where I think mostly the only thing I mostly said was just that this was a sexploitation film. Yes, so 
overall, uh, I actually thought this was a pretty good film. Uh, I don't necessarily know if this is something I would go out of my way to revisit quickly or anything like that. Uh, but at the same time, this is definitely something that I was introduced to that I would have not previously sought out. And I thought this was actually quite good. I think the biggest reason why I enjoyed this film so much uh, is the fact that this is always making you question what you're watching, but it's not like a reality mind bender, like something like the matrix or something like that, where it's wanting you to question your own morality or something like that. Like this is literally just making you question the previous actions of what have happened on screen but at the same time, it's also not necessarily saying that they didn't happen. Um, it's it's just continuing to play them forward and letting the viewer think for themselves. And at the same time, um, just creating these very captivating images throughout here. I mean, we have this very inviting castle landscape that is shown throughout this film. Um, there are so many great shots of, of the family on the rooftop walking around this weird kind of maze that's on the rooftop of this castle with just an endless horizon of trees in the landscape. Um, there's this beautiful seasonality in the sky. Uh, and then inside it's as described by the family that lives there, just a maze of, they don't even know what these rooms are. Cause mm -hmm. even though they live in this house, uh, it's just a house probably they've inherited and they just don't know shit about it. At one point, the dad has to take a torch just to get through some of the passages. <laughs> the other interesting thing is, and something else that definitely drew me to this film, and Nick, you kind of alluded to this early on when we were watching it, is that we don't know very much about the background of these characters, and it is up to the viewer to fill the gaps with that, even though some information trickles out throughout the film. Uh, you still make up your own mind about why is this person doing this in this situation? Why is this person like this in this scenario? It's it's very much a viewer's choice on why certain things are happening throughout the film. Um, and I think the meta aspect that you mentioned briefly um, is incredible because of that fact that I just mentioned is that you know you can have the viewer's individual opinions brought into what they're seeing on screen with this film. And it can make that something different to each individual viewer. Um, and I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, the other thing that's absolutely great about this is the actual cinemagraphic style of this is um, feels very familiar. I mentioned uh, Stanley Kubrick a couple times, and that is one of the most just, I don't want to say eccentric, but one of the most um, stylistically stubborn filmmakers of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, so to make a film that has a feel like his uh, is definitely something that is not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think. Um, particularly the, the motorcycle scene, um, the sound editing, and the visuals in a film that was made 50 years ago. Uh, are pretty remarkable. And just the actual beauty of this film in a film that was built from Nick as a you know, 
pornography film uh, is pretty pretty fantastic. And also, too, uh, as Nick alluded to earlier when we were watching this, the library scene <laughs> does deliver <laughs> in its off-the-wall, literally, nonsense of people throwing books and saying, ha-ha, these don't matter, you don't even, can't even read these anyways, which is actually true. Yep. Um, and then there's just two people having sex in it feels like it might be a bit rapey and it's it's so there's there's you're forgetting the floor mm. oh oh yes floor, yeah. mm-hmm. there's text on the floor and definitions of bad words uh of which the words are in english but the definitions are in a different language yeah and you we, made fun of me before when i said no. that and i was just like i was like what the fucking language is that and you were like english and i'm just like no i'm talking about the actual definitions of the words that's fair yeah because in fairness you did say that and then they did go in and out on the word fuck right after you said <laughs> oh, that whatever so it did seem like you were kind of missing something but then when you did see the rest of the definitions you are correct that seems to happen a lot when we watch films like there was that one film that we watched uh not to break away but it's also it had uh philip seymour hoffman in it before the devil knows you're dead before the devil knows you're dead and and i was like oh my god that's aunt may i was like yeah that's aunt may from the new films like no i'm talking about aunt may from the original sam well in fairness hold on that 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 was we were bewildered also correct right what yeah no that it was Anne May. I mean, that 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 actress, but Marissa Tomei was there, so it was a total misunderstanding. No, no. Okay, well, I was gonna say no. we were bewildered because of the fact that that was the twist no. where you first got confirmation that yeah. they were the parents. No, I registered that. I was. I like, know, but you shouted that's Aunt May, not holy shit plot twist. So then I think it was extra confusion of yeah. what we were reacting to to begin with. Yeah. yeah. So overall, I think uh, the Licorice Quartet is actually quite good, um, and I'm I'm surprised by how good it was actually. And yeah. I um, I thought the last scene was a little a little much probably, but at the same time, I think that the last scene was actually pretty fantastic too. I think it, the last it, scene, and I we can spoil it obviously, which mm-hmm. is the idea that the very final scene is that we switch it up and we now see the four people that were in the porno are now role reversed and they are watching the porno and the porno is Where do starring. they find these people to start yeah. these films? And yeah. the porno is starring the characters we were watching, yep. so everything is upended. I will say this. Prior to that, the movie was almost giving away too many answers. So I'd like the idea hmm. that... Uh, and I wouldn't say even answers, but just too much. Not too much. It, the movie was starting to crawl towards an actual solution to this quote-unquote puzzle. Mm-hmm. So for us, I'm glad that we end in a, another state of disarray yeah. because I would have felt that if we had ended anything short of that, um, it it would have lost its surreality. Well, and also, too, there are moments throughout this that I thought were absolutely fantastic when it comes to just meta filmmaking and 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 breaking the fourth wall not really but uh the the idea of running the film in reverse uh is brought up early on Mm -hmm. in terms of i'll run in reverse fast and it'll be funny haha uh and then they literally run the film backwards so the main character can deliver a different line of dialogue when a different character tells him 
that she doesn't really appreciate him saying that. Not the film uh, that they're watching, but the film that we are watching. It's no, I mean, well, now we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're the, the dream is collapsing here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <if> we <laughs> yeah. get too deep into this. Although yeah. you made a comment, which I thought was interesting, Alex, which you said yeah. you wish that they had done that more in some way after yeah. they had done it. Although the more I think about it, the more it wouldn't make sense only because that is the dad's trick and so for it to happen that, during... That's fair. And so if I guess... If they had done at least some time more in his segment, that would have been. But outside of his fantasy, only he likes to do it. Not to mention the son even calls him out on that uh, early on when he said, "This isn't life is not one of your little films and whatnot." But anyway, yeah. Um, and I will pass it off to Chisan. But one last thing I will say: um, the idea of the dad going and poaching the family out of a whorehouse uh, is something that I kind of caught on to early on and I, it was just kind of a guess. So it wasn't like something I was like for sure on. Um, but having the son have the story about seeing, was it Margaret or something? What was it? It was, uh, I don't know that they ever say their name. Okay. Or if they do, they say it's so infrequently. But the, but the son going and seeing and having this sort of biblical experience and, being very descriptive of that, and yet it looks like it sounds like he just. Oh, walks you're talking in. about the Saint. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Saint Margaret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really is just the son just walking in mm-hmm. on <laughs> the mother and this now father figure who's standing in, and him filling his subconscious with this story. Um, and we see all these images throughout when we are talking about the son and all these, you know, kind of fucked up things about horns being in people's asses and all that shit. Mm-hmm. So it, mm. that. Everything that pulls together with this film, and I think that is something about this that I think is great that you sold this as being a pornography film, uh, is that I was not expecting a film like this to be delivered. Um, And that also goes along to the fact of having preconceived notions about people and people in pornographic films and all that shit. So uh, it is definitely a something. And this is a film that... um, I actually would definitely recommend to people to see. So, I will yeah. also say really quick as a disclaimer to the listeners that technically speaking, this is not a pornography. No. I only say that so that way if for some reason you have some hard and fast rule, you could still watch this. This is technically an R-rated yeah. sex film. Uh, I'm not saying it's not close to it in its no. themes and, and certainly in its sensual uh, yeah. scenes and whatnot. But if for some weird reason you're like anti-pornography but not anti-Game of Thrones or something, <laughs> uh, you you could watch this. So the best way that I can describe the experience of watching this film is, you know how when you stare at a bright light for a very long time and then you just close your eyes and you move away from it? And you're sort of like blinking your eyes in order to like readjust your sight, but you can still sort of see like the vague uh, impression of that light on your eyelids. That's on your the corner. second film we watched today. Uh, yeah. Don't you remember uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson in Eight Men Out is staring at a candle, and they ask him what he's doing. He said, "I just like to stare at it." And they ask, "What do you do when you're done?" I switch to the other eye. Oh Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it was just it was just the fact that you brought up that description. I right. Would just, jump so yeah. i'm gonna shut the fuck up and let you continue okay thanks um so that's sort of what this this film felt like to me and what i've been trying to piece together my sort of impression of it is like i enjoyed this film i'm not entirely sure what the hell it was but if i was to describe it to someone i would say it was more of a 
it's like an erotic take on like Igmar Bergman's persona by way of Alain Reneus's uh last year at Marin Band, only without sort of the um the opulence of the latter or the sort of like monochromatic, like full on experimental experimentalism of the of the former. Um it actually more and more I think about it, it kind of reminds me a bit of Am Flux and what I like about Am Flux as a show. Um in that dialogue in this film feels like although there are there are good lines of dialogue in this film it's not so much the dialogue itself that's important as the sort of the actions that are prefacing though that the, like that actual dialogue dialogue is not meant to reveal meaning but rather to italicize it mm-hmm. um and really it's more about like seeing the the relationship of these characters to one another and and also that's another thing about this this film that I thought was interesting just the um the inscrutability of human relationships in this film. Cause I, at first I didn't know what the fuck the dynamic was of these, of, of these people on screen. And then you actually like sort of like tease that out. But even then you're not entirely aware of the full implications of it. And I like that. It sort of like leaves that sort of like tantalizingly unanswered for the fact that you can never really know like, Human beings are far stranger than we give them credit for, let alone human desires are far more ineffable and inscrutable than we give them um, give them credit for. So I like that aspect of this film. Uh, the cinematography was great. Um, the acting was actually pretty good for what it, what it was trying to accomplish. It was just very, very bizarre. And the more that I, I was watching this film, I was like trying to like piece all these things together. I was, like, I was trying to piece it together into some semblance of an answer, but this film all but confounds any sort of one answer it's like a it's like a puzzle box that doesn't have any pretense of being solved but rather you discover something different depending on whether you are in the mood to watch a film like this what kind of viewer you are like how do you actually read films um and the ending is just something that really does stick with me the sort of inversion of reality of how it like folds in and on itself. And it seems like the very texture of these people's lives unbeknownst to them is being sort of folded and uh, reshaped like the wings of a, of an origami animal. And it's just like, it's very fractal in a, in a a sort of sense. And I liked how it sort of inverted itself at the end. And the ending itself is not meant to, to, insinuate any one truth like oh it was this all the whole time and i'm just like no this is just one of many other permutations of how this story could have unfolded and it itself does not uh serve as a as an exclamation but rather as a uh an ellipses so yeah actually i will say about the ending and one reason why it really works for me is that i just do not get the impression just like what Hassan said uh at all that when that scene plays out that it's presented at all as a aha moment of Mm -hmm. this was true all along and nothing else matters or is true especially because if you look at this movie through the lens of just how uh 
people uh, view cinema and or sex in cinema and the way we fantasize about being in the screen. You could look at it as these people are so far gone into their sexual fantasies, bec- uh, which was disrupting their sexual realities, that they finally got their wish. <laughs> you know, and that maybe they caused it in and of itself, which I find fascinating. And that's only one of a million uh, interpretations of yeah. what it could be. Um, one small observation that, uh, really has no impact on the actual film, but something I just found was interesting, um, was the idea of the fourth member of their little crew, uh, which is the woman who is being fantasized about from the original pornography that they are watching, uh, when they find her and she is part of the motorcycle circus act, um, the fact that she has a wig that she wears in real life mm-hmm. and not in her pornographic life, so she has to actually put on a wig just to be herself as a real person to hide from this idea that she is. Um, and I think that is one aspect that is interesting, but the other side of that coin is she definitely, you think that that's the real person uh, that is her, and she's just trying to hide from this idea that all along, and I, I, I did mention this when we were watching the film, that you know these three people brought her back to the house and sat her down to watch this pornography film that they think that she's in. And what did they hope to gain what from that? What were they trying even? to accomplish with that? Yeah, there was, there, like, to, to, to seek out answers is like trying to, like, lasso jello, you know? It's just like it's always going to slip out of your hands, and I'm just like, I don't know how to... But the interesting part about all nailing Jello to the fucking wall yeah. is she seems to be on this quest to have them not find out that it's her, but not for the reason that we would think, but more because it's kind of just a game for her. Because when we mm-hmm. see her get into the bedroom and take off the wig, and then she just kind of lets herself Which be. Which is one of the most iconic shots in the movie, because she yep. does it in front of the mirror with the bubbles. Yeah. Bubble mirrors, I guess I'd call it. She f- obviously feels much more comfortable and can be herself again, um, and that's who she actually wants to be, and not this person outside this world that everyone just assumes is shamed that she participated in this pornography film at some point. Yeah. Well, and also, too, it's. Um, it's I think it's important to note that the movie itself exists in the sense that it kind of feel like one interpretation of this movie could be a very Mulholland Drive-esque mm. structure, although mm. it would be the inverse, where the reality is the first half of the movie, and then the, explicitly the characters go to bed. And then the quote-unquote next day is when they have their actual fantasies with her. So, uh, you know, it, there could be some of that at play too, which is that... Uh, the 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 second day the morning after whatever literally did not happen and whatnot and I also think that that's bullshit in a sense too so but I do think it's important to think about that that you know she entered the bedroom and it's there that she can be herself and then she wreaks havoc with all three uh, people um, but yeah uh, before we go to the next movie uh, I would say the the other thing I wanted to comment on um, would be that. Radley Mesker, the director, he's a very literary person. He Almost all of his films are either directly or indirectly based on some classical uh, work of literature. And usually not like the most famous ones, if not some of the slightly 
uh, not obscure, but under the radar works from very famous authors and whatnot. This one was uh, if uh, slightly inspired by the Italian play Six Characters in Search of an Author, which also the opening quote is from. Yeah. And I think it is kind of interesting that, you know, we, we talk about the relationship between the three people here, uh, the the mother, the father, and the son-like person. Um, and what I find interesting is you can kind of see the inspiration from that play, which that, if you are not familiar with it, the title does describe the play, which is a surreal play in which six characters actually show up uh, during a rehearsal um, and have no idea uh, why they're there and, hmm. you know where the director of their play or whatever, but the author of the script and whatever. Um, and I kind of see that certainly at play here with the three characters who at times, not only do we not kind of always have a hundred percent grasp on who they are and what they mean to each other, but even the characters themselves kind of see their connections tenuous at best uh, because at certain points they make uh, certain remarks that are confounding to them as well as to us. Like when the uh, father character says something to the mother of the effect of, um, yeah, how did the boy happen? As as if he somehow just became a being into existence, even mm. though that's, you know, silly and whatnot. Um, and even though we see the history possibly uh, told in the flashback with the little boy um, and, you know, walking in on the two of them, uh, it's funny how all three characters are just as in the dark as to how any of the three of them got to this point in their lives mm. uh, and how this dysfunction has kind of bubbled over. Um, you just follow one choice from the next to the next, and before you know it, you are, like, watching stag films in your uh, weird Italian palace and inviting some weird doing cir magic tricks. circus girl <laughs> back to watch magic tricks and then you're just <laughs> fucking folding reality in and out of itself. It's just, you know, life, life, life comes at you fast. It sure does. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the kind of movie, in my opinion, that you could do like a full episode on and really mm -hmm. dive deep. But I hope anyone listening is at least slightly intrigued by it because even if you listen to this without having seen it, it will still confound you and puzzle you. It's like we have in no way uh, explained it and or given credence to any one particular through line. Uh, someone else could watch this and think that it is explicitly and only about uh, the power of cinema and that these, yeah, sure. you know, these characters aren't real. It's a Christopher Nolan film. It's about filmmaking. Why, this, why you got to do that, man? And it's because of the disdain in Nick's face. It brings yeah. me joy. <laughs> Can't wait till we can do the next uh, Christopher Nolan film when that comes out. I mean, we probably I will. think we can wait. Yeah. 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 I think we're going to be able to because I don't think that's coming out anytime soon. Oh, come on. It's not like the Avatar films. Well, we may be dead by the time those come out. So. Yeah. We can only hope. <laughs> oh, wow. Damn. So do we want to give ratings for, for these or do we want to wait till the end? Why don't we give ratings for them okay. as we go, so that way we yeah. don't okay. have to be like, whatever. So, um, I'll go first, okay. if that's all right. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a five out of five star for myself. I, uh, five out of five star film. Um, this is pretty much right up my alley in that um, I am in no way averse to sexual cinema, and yet this is also my kind of surreal jam in which, um, you know... 
I get to watch something and never not engage with it every second I'm watching it. And I find it fascinating. This is, like I said, my fifth time watching it. And there were actually certain things I just never noticed before, which is always a good sign. I love during the credits of this movie when they're uh, walking down the path to go to the car to go to the circus. Um, I love at one point, and I didn't realize this, but when they're walking down their path, at one point, they pass by a rock structure that has a literal arrow pointed, uh, pointing in the direction that the path goes on, and I feel like that's just a ridiculously cheeky uh, way of just setting up the stage for a movie that is going to be very blunt and yet kind of confounding in its symbolism, uh, in which it exists in-universe, and yet is it even... What universe is this? <laughs> um, but I, I think it's fantastic. I actually think the cast is pretty great, um, but mostly I'm in love with it because of Radley Metzger's direction. And I think it's no surprise that besides his job at Janus Films, that his work on movie sets uh, before he became a director was as a film editor. And I think this movie is obviously, that's one of his greatest strengths, is that he's having a ball with splicing both flash-forwards and flashbacks. Uh, in microseconds at any given time. I mean, you actually see, as much as it's a, <laughs> as much as it's a curveball for a movie like this, uh, that that final scene happens. You actually see that guy by the projector very early on uh, in a very Fight Club esque moment of Tyler Durden esque popping up in the frame. So. Even that is kind of preordained by the way it had already pronounced itself in the celluloid you're watching. Mm -hmm. So um, I just think this is a fantastic movie, and I don't think anyone can not watch it and not have a reaction to it. So mm -hmm. I heartily recommend it. Mm -hmm. So I actually give this a, a really positive rating of four out of five. Ooh. Actually, I'm going to give this a higher rating than the film I suggested for this episode. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there you go. There's that. <laughs> but at the same time, um, that's not necessarily why we picked these movies. Yeah. But at the same time, I wanted to pick the best movie. Yeah. Well, you have done it. Just kidding. Uh, anyways. So <laughs> uh, I thought this was actually pretty fantastic. Uh, and even though we haven't gotten to the next day after watching it for the first time, um, I had been thinking about this film throughout the day after watching this as we watched this first. Uh, so when we watched the other two films, I was obviously trying to watch them and enjoying them at the same time. But at the same moment, also thinking about this particular film. Uh, and I think there was a lot going forward here and a lot of, uh, I think, preconceived notions going into this uh, that are turned on their head. And then you have the actual preconceived notions of the film being turned on its head. Uh, and then just overall, this is a, a good film, a pretty solid story, and it actually looks really good, too. Uh, and all of that pieced together, I think, makes a really good final product. So mm -hmm. I gave four out of five to the Licorice Quartet. Cool. Uh, I'm going to give it a uh, three out of five. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I would probably recommend it. If you're into this sort of thing, it's like, yeah, this is a good movie. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So, uh, earlier today, on my ride in to this episode, I actually listened back 
to uh, the one of the early bonus episodes on here, which was our baseball episode, uh, which was only myself and Kenny Marcellus. It's Marcellus's. a sore spot for me. It's the only episode of Film Tank I've never been on. Oh. I'm but good. it's a bonus episode, so it's it doesn't true. count. It's not one of the numbered episodes. It's not one of the... <laughs> The famous 200. But at the same time, uh, it was a very early episode, I think, with the old microphones. That's usually how I judge new and older episodes. Anyways, that's me, personally, not anyone else. So, uh, listening back to that episode, and I didn't listen to the whole thing, so I'm not sure if we may have covered this towards the end, but 8 Men Out was not one of the first episodes or first films that we talked about on the baseball episode. If at all, it was mentioned. Uh, it's not in the image I made for it. It's not mentioned in the intro in terms of one of the movies we're going to be talking about. So it's interesting that this is the one I landed on. Uh, for anyone who does not know anything surrounding 8 Men Out, it is a dramatization of the Black Sox scandal when the underpaid Chicago White Sox accepted bribes to deliberately lose the 1919 World Series. So this film stars John Cusack as Buck Weaver, one of the players from the White Sox, and also features Clifton James, Bill Irwin, John Mahoney from Frasier, and other things as well. Also, Michael Rooker, Charlie Sheen, David Strahern, D.B. Sweeney, and Christopher Lloyd. So, this film was directed by John Sayles, uh, who really, after, you know, the 80s, 90s, didn't really do that much in terms of directing. Like, he was involved with other projects, writing them and also was an actor every now and then in some films as well but in terms of being a director he's not super well known and that's not the reason why i picked this movie um i i really wanted to talk about this and i really made it one of my three choices because this is such an interesting film to me personally because it surrounds a topic that i absolutely love which is baseball, uh, and also surrounds an era that I find absolutely fascinating, which is the early 1900s in baseball. Um, the idea that this sports were a different, a different pastime in the early 1900s, and the participants in sports were viewed not as heroes, but they were viewed as just vessels to enjoying this experience and they were treated as such they were treated like shit mostly from the owners and the fans i mean you see literally people bringing up players shortcomings to them during games um, you're illiterate yeah uh and i don't think at all Not to mention that's what, a weird thing for just fans to know yeah <laughs> why do they know that uh, I, uh, how do they know now in that particular situation yeah. that probably did not actually happen uh, okay. but at the same time um reading on baseball history as i have especially from this era um the interactions between fans and players are pretty fucking epic I mean, the idea of there were multiple players, most notably Ty Cobb, who would literally go into the stands and start beating people up during games, and there were no repercussions for them. Uh, is, what a halcyonic time. 
Oh, it's just uh, to me, it's fascinating. Now the fans will beat up the fans for them. Well, yeah, Steve Bartman. <laughs> yeah, oh boy. that's a that's a rough spot for the Cubs. That's 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 tough. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Okay, the well. guy who was in the uh, the outfield, the stands, <laughs> and he's just a fan, but. Went to catch a foul ball the same way anybody would try to. If, yeah. And then he did catch it, but then people... No, he didn't catch it. It hit, off, no, hit yeah. off his arm. Hit off his arm. Yeah. And so people basically thought that he lost the game for the Cubs. So... And, like, he was escorted out of the stadium. As he was getting things thrown at him. security. Death threats I mean, after the game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was a big thing. He was on, like, night, Dateline or 2020 or whatever. When was this? Oh, this was 2003. Oh, uh, oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, so we don't need to spend lots of time on it, but at the same time, uh, the Cubs were not really... having so good of a time. No, they were really close to clinching a spot in the World Series oh, in 2003. Wow. Uh, they were four outs, five outs away or four outs away, I can't remember which. Uh, from getting to the World Series, they had a three-run lead over the Florida Marlins uh, at the time. And Moises Alou, uh, the outfielder for the Cubs, who actually was an absolutely terrible outfielder and would have <laughs> never caught that ball if there was nobody in the stands, uh, went over and tried to catch it. And not just Steve Bartman, but fucking everybody yeah. in the section had their arms out trying to catch the ball as nobody is watching the fielder. The ball is coming towards them. They are looking up and trying to catch it. Uh, so, you know. It's a split-second thing that, really, there's not much you can do about that. And it just happened to hit off him, and Moises Alou made a big to-do about the fact that he was not able to catch the ball because this fan interfered with it. Uh, and really, his childish reaction swayed the crowd, so then they thought that, yes, Moises is correct. Yeah, pack mentality. That's he great. has done this to us, and then all of a sudden, after that... Um, as with a lot of times with the Cubs previous to them winning the World Series in 2016, things went to shit after this event happened, and the Marlins proceeded to score eight runs in that inning, and the game was over, and then they lost the series. And, and remember... Th he was removed from the stadium and has been in hiding ever since for the most part. Yeah, and remember, this was coming from a professional sports team that blames a goat for their failures so. yeah it's it was it, it's it's not been a great history for the cubs mm. i will say that they have have come a long way here and they have had a reparations for steve bartman eh, okay yeah you want to put that fist down <laughs> <laughs> oh boy uh, um but at the same time uh baseball and it is cool that we're talking about this because it is a very interesting barometer of what is going on um, with the time in our country as uh, not that it's a sport that you would gauge anything about politics or anything like that, but certainly the players and the fans from each time period, uh, if you're watching a film or just remembering history of baseball, um, there are lots of great and also terrible things of society that have been Firmly entrenched in baseball, obviously, severe racism has been a long time 
uh, historical aspect of baseball. I mean, you look at how big of a deal it was that Jackie Robinson had broken into baseball, and obviously it's great that he was, but it was that big a to-do because they did not allow black players before that. Racism, it's like the the special sauce of the American pie. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunately true. Yeah. Uh, and just everything else that goes along with it. And then we arrive at this film uh, about the 1919 Chicago White Sox. And what I love about this film, absolutely, even if it is not the best film ever made, um, is this idea of showing exactly how this could come about, that the players would want to throw the series. This idea that at the time, players were treated very poorly, and they were only paid based on what their particular owner wanted to pay them. They really had no rights. And at the same time, um, it was a time when things like this could be easily exploited. Not that it couldn't be now, um, but this idea of... The early 1920s, late 19-teens gangster scene, which is, you know, ran by Al Capone or uh, Arnold Rothstein, or eventually would be run by somebody like Meyer Lansky or somebody like that, could easily just get their, get their nails in uh, on this, and they can have a lot of influence, and it is um, very fascinating that this is actually for the most part a true story. And uh, the other thing that I absolutely love about this film and mostly also just about the story is the idea that, you know, these are professional players who play baseball for a living. So obviously they want to play baseball well, and that is in their DNA and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to fall for to, you know, take a dive for a paycheck. They want to look good, but they also do want to get paid. But at the same time, um, they're professional athletes, even though it's a different time, and these are real gangsters who are influencing them to make these choices to take the money. And hey, is that your wife? Well, yeah. Oh yeah. boy, yeah. yeah that, that 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 happens uh, before the eighth game. But I also really like on that comment. Sorry, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna forget. But the way that guy says, "Yeah, if it's not me, it's gonna be somebody else." Like even oh, yeah. even that guy is like not even trying to be suave about it. It's just kind of like, "No, it's a foregone conclusion." Even if I die, yeah, no, uh, it's the scene referring to is the pitcher from the eighth game when there's this mood changing because they have not paid the players because early on in the film we see this idea that we don't actually have to give them any money because. We've just hooked them in already that they're going to get paid, so they will do whatever we want now, uh, which is very uh, fucked up. But at the same time, obviously true, unfortunately, uh, but the players have decided that they're just going to not do this anymore, and we need to have a course correction in terms of how the mood is going. So, you know, just send someone to, you know, say he's going to murder their family. Man, what a, it's a big deal. Uh, I, I love the idea that, that this just collapsed on them very quickly in the middle of the series, and most people were aware of what was happening. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. It is obviously a dark spot on Major League Baseball's history, but something that I feel like there is not much out there about this. Like, there is a couple books written about the Black Sox, there is this movie. Uh, there are a couple other pieces of media that are floating out there if you want to try to find them. Yeah, it's a very sensational thing for something that's so often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But I, I think this is just a fascinating story that involves so many parts of America at this time in its history. And the fact that this happened and then it led to baseball deciding to just hand over any decisions made to this commissioner that they've decided to appoint just who's to, a judge. It, has, it was a very short-sighted decision that was meant to sort of um, to, to eschew away this, this scandal while in, in, in turn basically selling out – like the legacy of baseball in perpetuity from that moment forward. They didn't understand what they were doing. They really were just like trying to find a way. It was like, look, I don't. I just want to absolve myself from any type of uh, complicity in this fucking bullshit. Although ironically, like, the movie almost paints the this particular commissioner as like the true voice of morality. Uh, suppose I I only say that because he's barely in it and no. barely has any lines, and yet the one thing he does is like, yeah, I don't care what the legal system says, considering what legal system is actually built to dictate, you know, Major League Baseball. Yeah. So if I'm the commissioner, I'm gonna say that that's fucking bullshit. The and, law is what I say. It is. And all eight of you are not allowed to play, which makes perfect sense because mm-hmm. why would you, you know? No, it's this idea of giving absolute power to one person. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, yeah. that's always worked out, out. Like the scope of that decision was woefully underthought and <laughs> whatnot. Um, I just think it's funny in, in this framework of this narrative, it's ending on like an almost like, I wouldn't say on like an optimistic note, but just kind of like, hmm. well, at least justice is served. I, I find yeah. the last 15, 10 minutes of this film actually to be quite good um, because, you know, you have the first act in this film is definitely clearly defined uh, by different sections. The first act is everything leading up to the series and then you have the actual series itself, and then you have all of everything that has happened after the events have actually transpired, the legal battles, people trying to clear their names. Uh, you have Joe Jackson, who is illiterate, and that's made painfully clear throughout this film that that's his only trait that we're going to learn about. Uh, his name is Shoeless <laughs> Joe Jackson. That's actually true, but yeah. No, I know, but I'm saying his, it, like, his name is Shoeless One of the greatest baseball players of his time, Joe he Jackson. Was and yet, apparently, the most fascinating thing about him is that he's illiterate. No! He's shoeless! <laughs> Come on! Okay. He happens to have no shoes. So uh, Also, players threw their gloves on the field after they were done playing an inning, which I, 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 I can only assume would be catastrophic for anybody trying to catch a ball that was running towards someone's glove and stepped Steve on Bartman. it by mistake. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, I, I, uh, but the final 10 minutes of this film, uh, where we have the courtroom decision where it's decided that the players are found not guilty, which mostly is because we don't want to implicate any of the actual gangsters who will fuck everyone's business up if we do. And then we have them banned from baseball anyways. And then we end the film actually on a pretty wonderful note, in my opinion, where Shoeless Joe Jackson is playing under a different name. In a shitball minor league baseball park with but he's you know, good. thirty fans, but he's good and he's getting to play baseball. Um, but at the same time, he's playing for basically nothing in front of almost nobody, which is pretty much where he started, anyways, in this yeah. era. So. But only in nineteen twenty-five, because man, Wikipedia and shit—that'd be that just that's a whole other scene if it took place a hundred years later. Right, yeah. The idea, no, I'm just saying, like it's just such a weird thing, like, and that's how these kind of stories happened because it was such a different time and different context and just the idea that you know people you know we we don't 
they weren't even close to the kind of celebrity worship well, you, culture that you we have were. Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, who notoriously was not a very nice person. Um, but we see his character sensationalized in this film. Yeah, he seems more like a jolly giant. Yes, but at the same time, he's viewed as this just almost like Mr. Potter kind of character where he's like, you're not getting my money, fuckers. Uh, <laughs> so it's more like Burgess Meredith <laughs> as the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That Batman series was fantastic. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, you know, the idea of, A, paying players almost nothing comparatively for the job they're doing and the interest and money they're creating uh, obviously has n- not really it's a thing of the past as major league athletes at least in the major four sports in baseball basketball and football are for the most part pretty well compensated and at the same time um this idea of someone's the majority of their salary being dictated by certain stats and ownership just deciding to just not have them reach those stats at the last minute so they could not have to pay them that really wouldn't go over very well uh, in this day and age. It would not uh, be something you could just sweep under the rug. So, anyways, I'm a fan of this film. Uh, I love it because of the time and history that it is representing, but also uh, the idea that it is showing this really incredible story that uh, is is just under the radar, mostly because it is obviously a dark spot on baseball's somewhat illustrious history. So... If you guys have any other thoughts on this, please take it away. I don't have any like extensive thoughts uh, on this film for the fact that I'm not really all that engrossed in baseball as a sport, let alone on the history of baseball. But I will say that I thought this was a capably made film. Um, I was um, involved and engrossed in the actual story itself, which is saying a lot given the fact that I don't really have much of a frame of reference. Uh, but I was interested um on the merit of the actual performances from John Cusack. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is really sort of like a non-entity in this film, but it was nice to see him there uh, just for the sake of it. Michael Rooker uh, seeing him was like, that's, that's, that was another sort of aspect of like watching this film. And I'm just like, Oh yeah, this is before they decades before they, they're really like breaking out now. And like, I actually like know their names. This is very early Michael Rooker. And apparently, as I was mentioning to you guys earlier in his, he when he went and read for this role, he kind of had an outburst because all the events surrounding his reading for it did not really go the way that he was planning it to. And the director, whoever saw him doing his test for this, said, "That's what we want." So yeah. that's well, how he ended up getting this role. Yeah, and yeah. obviously, At his career for the most part has worked out. So yeah, yeah. Um, no, you go. Nick. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually very much enjoyed this movie. I um, One thing I want to say to his credit is that watching it, um, I, I really want to watch it again with the subtitles. Uh, I mean, I like to watch any movie with subtitles, but <clears throat> uh, one thing I was very enamored with was how consistently sturdy it's, uh, shall we say, hold on the shifting dynamics of these players was, which is that I almost found it confusing, and not in a bad way, but just because it was my first time hearing mm-hmm. any of these characters' names and what, or I should say ball players' names and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, but it always seemed extremely true to the script, at least, as to who was in on it, who wasn't, who was in a 
in on it only for a day, you know, whatever, uh, and so on and so forth in the sense that uh, it had such a, I don't know, it, I guess I wasn't expecting it to be so so much like a procedural in a way, which I mean in a good way, mm-hmm. which is that we see huge chunks of all of the games of the World Series. Like, I definitely thought it would have been more of a montage of, mm. like, you know, just get through all the games within about 20 minutes and whatnot. So when I kind of settled in for the fact that this was going to actually use, like, an hour of running time to go through each game and whatnot, I I found that both fascinating, and I I just love the way it deployed its character dynamics of uh, who was angry with who for choices made during on the field, and then, of course, off the field, Mm -hmm. uh, and who was starting to lose their cool because of, you know, uh, something like this, and I I said this to Alex, it blows my mind, even though it totally happened, that somebody thought that what what worked for a single player sport in the case of something like boxing would somehow seamlessly work for a team sport you know like the variable factor is just exponentially uh increased as to, and so the idea that you can somehow corral that kind of uh concerted loss is just unfathomable to me. Well, the other the other aspect of this is the idea that all of these bookies and all these other gangsters are basically selling to the actual bankrolling people who have the real money, like Arnold Rothstein, mm-hmm. uh, that we got these seven or eight players, they're just going to fucking lose. Like, it's yeah. in the bag. Yeah. Uh, and then you actually see when the events start to transpire and a lot of outside factors start playing in and all of a sudden it's not as easy as it sounds on paper. And again, like you're mentioning, each one of these people have not thrown games before, let alone in a team sport where half of the other people on the field with them are not in on it. So, yeah, yeah, and not only that, but two, the idea that never once, and I'm pretty sure this is true to life, but never once did any of them have a plan. I mean, they had... One or two instances of, like, you know, like, hit the first batter and it's on or whatever. But, like, if you're going to try to do something like this, it would almost, I would think, be worthwhile to come up with a throw game one, play your hardest game two, even if you lose, that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, and mix it up and almost, like, plan it to a T. But instead it was just like, nah, throw the throw the series Okay, like, and that's why we get the scenes that unfold, which is, like, on any given day, even characters that were in on it were getting somewhat fed up with having to do it and, you know, whatnot, and that was informing their both decisions that they were making or just their overall playing style. I mean, even even Michael Rooker, who is, like, the leader of the players organizing to try to make this happen, has the game-winning hit in one of the games, and Mm -hmm. he arrives at first base, and then it just focuses it on me. We just have him just delivering... Oh shit! Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it, he wasn't even necessarily trying. Yeah. He just was wanting to hit the baseball, and it just happened to be a base hit. So. Or even I believe it's the pitcher, right? When he talks to John Mahoney, and he's like, "You got to put me in because he was gonna do someone else." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, "No, no, no, you got to. I, you know, I can't miss today or whatever." Yep. And he wins that game. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, and it's um, it's just one of those things where it's just funny because. You saw you had said it earlier, but you know these ball players they can only do one thing well, and that's what they're doing for a living, yeah, so the idea that they were somehow going to do the exact opposite 
so well that it was going to be believable and convincing. It's almost comical how how they thought that that would actually like succeed. Probably yeah. because, in all honesty, they've seen it in movies or something like that. Like they thought that oh. This is not a problem. All we have to do is just play a little less good and we'll make money. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, it was weird to see Charlie Sheen act. <laughs> it is. It is. Baseball seems to be uh, definitely a film genre for whatever that he is uh, comfortable in, at least in the 90s, because mm-hmm. he was in this and then two of the major league films. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he's pretty much just playing a character here. Yeah. No, I mean, he's got some great facial reactions uh, like in the courtroom when uh, I can't I think it may have been I don't remember what was happening but the smirk that he gives and whatnot mm-hmm. and that's the, the last thing I'll say too uh, is that the courtroom scene that I thought were pretty great um, mm. John Mahoney has maybe my favorite moment in the entire movie mm. where he's basically kind of having to eat shit uh, and pretend uh, and, and I don't think it's completely like he's completely lying. Like I genuinely think he still has affection for his team and whatnot. Oh yeah. But obviously, to uh, pronounce it in that way is slightly inauthentic. Uh, I, you know, there's a sadness that he wishes he could say that under different circumstances. Well, and there is also the idea, and this is mentioned multiple times throughout the film. You know, of uh, you know. He's a team player, so even if he's not into it, he would not roll over on us. And this obviously turns around as they end up having to be in legal proceedings, and there's this idea that they could go to jail for this shit. And all these these players, then all of a sudden, as in a lot of great films, like, some, I mean, I don't know why it's coming to my head, but like some that's fantastic when it comes to interrogations, like L.A. Confidential, um, you know, as soon as someone cracks, the whole thing just starts collapsing, and you see this pretty much as Eddie Seacott, uh, David Strathairn's character, just immediately just breaks down when they tell him, oh, we've got the confessions from everyone else. He's like, oh, yeah, we fucked this up. <laughs> yep. So, you know, um, I- I'll give my rating for this. Okay. I-, I think this is um, pretty great. I actually give this a lower rating than uh, the last one we talked about. I give this a three and a half out of five, mostly because... Although I love the story here, um, and I actually do really like the film itself, I feel like the story is the big selling point for me here. I think the film-wise, this is just pretty good. Uh, But overall, I think this content-wise is fantastic. I think this is an incredible part of baseball's history, even if it is definitely a stain on its legacy. And also, at the same time, um, this era is, is fascinating to me in baseball's history as well. So, um, a pretty solid film and definitely one that I enjoy watching and um, something that I think pretty much anybody should check out because it definitely has gone under the radar when it comes to sports films. So, three and a half out of five for me for Eight Men Out. I'll give this a... Yeah, I'll give it a three and a half out of five. Oh, okay. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Good. Very well. I also will give it a three and a half. Go team! Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. No, I found it uh, extremely enjoyable. I think really the only thing that holds it back is just that it can be for, uh, perfunctory at times mm-hmm. when it comes to presenting its information. But the cast is uniformly excellent. <laughs> baseball players wear uniforms, and uh, I think that the the it, it it was a nice throwback to kind of a classical biopic uh, structure. Uh, which uh, you don't see too often. Usually this kind of story, if it was made, uh, 
you know, nowadays it would have been very rushed, you know, like we would have mm-hmm. barely gotten to spend some of those quieter scenes, like some of the scenes like on the train and whatnot. Um, it just doesn't happen anymore. And I, I was very thankful that while I found it slightly dizzying at times and trying to keep up with everybody's involvement, uh, which like I always knew who was in and who was out, but it, there is certainly a power uh, hierarchy here as to how much people were in and out, you know, at times. So um, while I found that to be slightly uh, just above my head for the first time watch, because this is all news to me in general, mm-hmm. um, I, I I was, that was one of actually I thought it was the strongest aspect, because I just thought the confidence in relaying that information with the actor's performances was pretty great. Um, but also I just like the fact that it's a sports movie that is actually about sports in and of itself because so so many times a sports movie comes out and the sports aspect it's not that you know movies like like the Disney trend that they did about 15 years ago with like remember the Titans and uh, the rookie and invincible and all those movies you know whatever like those kinds of sports movies uh, can be good or bad, but they always presuppose that the audience themselves love sports. But what this film presupposes is yes. what if they didn't? <laughs> and what I liked about this one... Thanks, Tucson. <laughs> yeah, what I like about this is that this is a movie that actually tries to get into sports as an actual community uh, for good and bad and what goes into it, whether it's the blood, sweat, and tears of the players or the kind of corrupt financial, I don't, and I don't even mean the bookies and whatnot, but the, the corrupt financial capitalism of the higher-ups and how these things mesh up, and yet also down on the very bottom with the fans, which we get uh, constant conversations with the little children, with John Cusack's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is truly looking at America's pastime uh, mm-hmm. at all angles, and it happens to do that centering around one of the bleakest moments in the sport, sure. and yet it doesn't feel like a deeply cynical movie. Well, and you look at other films that have been made about baseball, and there's there's you know at least ten examples that are for the most part pretty recent and relevant. Um, the one that comes up to most people just off the top of their head is Field of Dreams, uh, and that is a film that really I think is aged really poorly because it's just this sort of religious experience where we have and it does actually involve Shoeless Joe Jackson who's yeah. played by Ray Liotta in that film um, and this he I, doesn't seem very dumb in that movie no. does heaven make you smarter but I mean they, just all the events surrounding no, that in, in, this, in this idea that uh, if we build this baseball field and destroy our crops um, people will come and just hand us money. Here's the oh, thing boy. about <laughs> Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. You can say it's baloney. I'm not, saying, <laughs> I'm not saying you're saying that, but I'm just saying in, in general. You can say it's baloney, but you know out there some corporate bigwig who was trying to get their field name was like, if you build it, they will come. And, you know, like, wow. you know, putting asses in the seats, that's what it's all about, am I right? Yeah, but I mean, it is a little easier when you've got literally players from a hundred years ago just appearing out of the cornfield, and you have James Earl Jones just delivering monologue after monologue, talking about if we just go find Moonlight Graham, all the people will show up. All that shit. So I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> 
Wasn't that like a hot dog? Yeah, he, that that's actually a pretty good scene. Yeah, yeah. I watched that movie like oh, I've seen once it a day too many times when I had it on VHS. Sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That uh, that that film is uh, interesting because you know everything that happens around it and surrounds the aspects of it, uh, and especially the ending scene where the girl almost dies and then she's saved by the guy who was actually a player who came back, but then he actually was supposed to be a doctor, but then he was back to being a player after he moves and being dead. And oh, yeah, I don't God. know why he's able to go in <laughs> and back out, but sure. Yeah, it's 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 a weird movie. Anyways. <laughs> Good stuff out. on Amen Out, <laughs> and we had that really weird tangent on a Field of Dreams, but that's there for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, Toussaint, I already completely butchered the title of your film, so I will let you take the wheel from here okay. and, and drive us into, A, what this film is and why you picked it and okay. what you want to say about it. All right, cool. So, the third film that we watched tonight was my pick, and that is 1987's uh, Royal Space Force, The Wings of Honamis. Uh, directed by Hiroyuki Yamaga of Gainax fame. Uh, the reason why I wanted to choose this film is because it's anime, and we don't actually do a lot of anime on this podcast. And It's pretty much been Howl's Moving Castle, and that's it. Right? Yeah, it's pretty much been that. So yeah. I was thinking along the lines of what is a film that I could convince uh, – Nick and Alex to watch hmm. under the pretense of this episode of the you know what the parameters of this episode are and that they would still be able to sort of enjoy and that be able to take something away from it. and that would actually be you know fodder for a lively conversation and I feel like this film fulfills all of those hmm. uh, those criteria for good and for ill uh, hmm. I'm looking forward to getting into that but sort of the the backstory for why this film is significant, um, not necessarily to me, but just sort of like in the broader continuum of anime history. Uh, so in the early 1980s, during the 1980s, it was actually a pretty uh, colossally important time when it comes to like the the evolution of anime and sort of the, the Western cultural uh, acknowledgement of anime, given the fact that this was a time where um, the rise of... Um, home video entertainment came into play where you had VHS tapes, you had Betamax, you had those sort of like um, basically formats that could be used to like greater expand, like um, viewing the audience, the audience and viewing taste for like uh, forms of media that didn't necessarily fit on either onto terrestrial television or in the movie house. You can have a, a greater plurality of, of, um, mediums and, and topics and genres that you could explore for that. And anime was definitely one of those. I don't think that anime would be anywhere near as big as it is were it not for the home video revolution of the 1980s. So during the early 1980s, there was a team of these uh, these seven nerds, right? These seven otaku, basically obsessive like anime fans, right? And they were so obsessive that they decided to make their own little short films. So in 1981, they made this film uh, that was basically the inaugural like opening animation for a Japanese science fiction convention called uh, Daikon 3, right? Daikon 3 was a very big deal. It was like, holy shit, like these seven like know-nothings, they just like made their own little short anime film. And even though the animation was sort of like, you know, a little bit hokey and stuff, it was very imaginative and very interesting, right? Two years later, they already had, like, some experience underneath their belt. They were just, like, freelancing and working on different types of other shows, maybe a little bit of Gundam here, maybe a little of Macross there. Um, and they came out with Daikon 4, 
which really blew everybody the fuck away because not only were they using all of these copyright characters that they had no right to be using, they had uh, Darth Vader fighting this girl in a, in, a, in a bunny outfit with lightsabers and shit, and it was set to um, Electric Light Orchestra's Twilight. Um, it's a it's a very entertaining short film that I would definitely recommend to anybody because those two short films um, were the foundation of a studio that this, would. This is really random. Did they get in trouble at all for that? No, they didn't get in trouble for that. Okay. No, nobody could. At, at that point, nobody really gave a fuck, and George okay. and George Lucas doesn't give a fuck either. At least at that <laughs> point, it's like it was too small, too minor for them to ever. If the internet was around, they probably would have. Oh yeah, absolutely. Then it would have gotten posted. Oh absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But that would have been totally, totally different time, totally different context. But anyway, after that, they were sort of just the the hot ticket. Like people wanted to hire these actual like animators, these actual seasoned animators who would come out with like you know two short films under their belt, and so you had. Bandai Visual at the time, who was vying to basically make their own feature-length uh, animated film because uh, around the time of 1984, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, uh, I believe the second feature-length film by uh, Hayao Miyazaki had just come out, and that was based off of his original like uh, like manga that he created in order to like pitch that actual idea. Um, it, it came out and it was a huge success. And it was like, hey, we want to get on this train too. So basically they uh, solicited these seven animators like, hey, so uh, what do you got for us? And eventually they wanted to pitch an OVA, which is like an original video animation for Gundam at the time. And they were like, no, nah, we don't want to do that. We want you to do your own original thing. And we are going to give you what is like the equivalent. Like they're going to give them 8 million yen. So during that time, uh, that commuted to at least like 33 Billion U.S. dollars. So okay, so it's actually probably something like twenty million dollars or something. Like oh that, yeah, right? that I mean, that yeah. to a to a to a team of not greenhorns but just shy of greenhorns who had just come out with a critically acclaimed like little short film that basically opened up a, a, a Japanese natural national uh, science fiction convention, and basically they were just making this entire universe from whole cloth. Um, they were actually sent to the United States in order to study like aeronautics and like other stuff like that. They actually got to uh, witness the Discovery um, launch. And uh, in 1987, they actually premiered uh, the film for the first time in uh, the United States as a way of like promotional material to like have it back in Japan. Uh, and it was called Royal Space Force Wings of Honamis. And basically it follows the story of this um, would-be astronaut named Shiro on this speculative alternate Earth that is sort of similar to our own, but also noticeably different in many, many different ways. It just has its own, like, exhaustive world-building going on at play from its architecture to uh, the clothes that these people wear to the games that they play to the liquor that they drink to the languages that they speak. It is honestly just baffling the, the level of... of detail that this film actually gets into how granular it gets into just for a, a two-hour film which is you know it's lengthy but just like i i've not experienced this a lot in, in in many anime films since then so basically shiro's whole arc is moving from this sort of layabout who doesn't really have a cause in his life sort of wonders what the hell he's doing uh to eventually meeting this uh young woman who's uh sort of religious passion and her sort of like starry-eyed optimism for the idea of what space travel could do towards um, bringing peace to an 
pretty turbulent world uh, emboldens him to actually get serious about the the privilege and the position that he is in right now and he volunteers to become what would be this universe's equivalent of um, the first man in space. So, yeah, um, this film is one that I actually first experienced uh, back, I think, in 2016 when I wrote up a list of, like, 100 um, anime, sh- anime films along with uh, Jason DeMarco, who was, like, the who is the senior on-air VP of Adult Swim and one of the co-creators of Toonami. And he actually, like, was the one who introduced me to this film. I had heard about it before, but I had never really sat down and, like, watched it and studied it and talked about it. And what I really like about this film, um, just in general, like, why I chose it is because I love the world building. I think that it is a wonderfully animated film. I don't think that necessarily Shiro is my favorite protagonist by any any stretch of the imagination. What? Yeah, I think he's uh, he's all right. He's he's serviceable. Um, there's some other things about uh, his arc that uh, that trouble me and that I. What would I, that be? Oh, we're gonna get into that a little <laughs> bit later. Um, but yeah, just the me- mechanical designs, the mechanical animation, uh, the physical humor in this. Uh, Funny enough, it's just really well done. It was like I, the timing is, is, is it, it it just works, um, and it's just so distinct in its tone and its pacing, so deliberate, so methodical that I'm just not used to an animated or anime film like this, and that's why it sort of like peeks out of my mind. It's like I thought of this like you know this film is peculiar enough and sort of idiosyncratic enough that I would be interested to see how. What, what kind of reactions it would elicit from somebody who isn't necessarily bespoken to anime. And so that's why I chose uh, this film in particular um, to, to watch. Uh, now, as I mentioned that before, there is a... Uh, do you want to just like do? Do you want to just like toss the ball about yeah, that? Do you want to? There is do, a um, yeah. Let's 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 let's, let's, you, let's unpack this. If let's, you just if you just want to jump right into it, uh, there is an attempted rape scene. Oh in this yes, film. there is. Yes, there is. It and, is. And uh, um, the scene is is bad enough by itself. Um, but then, but then the uh, the female. Uh, Going back and back and back and back and back again mm-hmm. to try to take the blame for uh-huh. the scene that happened. Yeah, out of some sort of weird mix between female and religious guilt. Yeah, uh, is is it's it, it's awkward. It's very off-putting. It is it is it is um, powerfully off-putting. I'll, I'll put that. I was like, I remember when I watched this film and I was corresponding. Um, about putting it on the list, I was like, okay, I'm. I do believe that this film is historically significant enough, and I think it's well made enough, and I think that people should watch this film. But I cannot, in good conscience, uh, put this film on the list if we don't talk about that scene and actually contextualize it and actually like have a conversation about it. Because I feel like if I were not to do that, if I were to put this film on that list and and to just be silent on that. And for people to just watch it, like I feel like that is irresponsible for me as a writer and as a critic to not actually engage with it instead of just like fall back on superlatives. Like that's just cowardice in my opinion. So we did do that, and I am actually very proud of how we addressed and contextualized that 
I guess the, the the thing for me is that that scene felt so out of place. Yes, for the rest of the it film. is. Yes, it is. It You're does. talking about the reaction or the the entire. I mean, I, I feel like attempt. the idea of him wanting to pursue her is obviously there. Yeah. But then the idea of him just seeing that she was happening to take off her clothes yeah. and then just forcing the situation mm-hmm. uh, and then all the events around the actions of that and then from, everything from the instigating like action on his part of like basically like forcing himself on her to that sort of horror being attempted to be diffused through comic relief of him being like bludgeoned against the head with the thing you know like yeah. that to yeah. then the aftermath of the morning after where she or he is trying to apologize to her but no 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 she's going to apologize to him yeah. repeatedly over and over is just so so baffling but it really is like the, the, I, the fact that um you put that in your film okay yeah but uh, the fact that it never comes up again, yeah, uh, is 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 actually makes it that much worse. Yeah, I know. It's just it it's it's like I don't know what the fuck they were thinking. <laughs> I, honestly, I'm I'm just gonna be be totally honest. Um, I get maybe this is a generous reading on my part. So to this point in the in the film, the to to be clear. The participants in this scene necessarily are the protagonists and basically uh, the protagonist like sort of pseudo love interest that is the who is the sort of the the instigating factor to him actually like getting his shit together and actually wanting to pursue to become an astronaut. Re- re- really quickly. Can yeah. I ask you this? Yeah. Um, is there any information out there about anything in terms of the tone and some of the conversations that they have being lost in translation surrounding that scene by any chance? No, I think it's pretty uh, cut and clear. Like okay. to to to, there's been a lot of like interviews with like the director of that times. Like to be fair, not even to be fair. Like the, the, it's no excuse, but like this is still this was still a relatively young team, mm-hmm. 24 years old in the middle of the 19 like 80s. I'm not going to say it was a different time because it really doesn't matter if it was a different time. It was fucked up then. It's fucked up now. But it's 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 a very different climate. Very, very different, like, sort of understanding of, of like – and then there's this sort of cultural divide of, 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 of these sort of – ah, God, it's so fucked up. <laughs> like, I, I, can't, I can't make reasons to, to justify this. It's just fucked up. I'm just going to say that. Um, and – you know, that's one of the, the reasons why I sort of hesitated to choose this film in particular because for all the things that I like about that film leading up to, like, at least three-fourths of the way up to the film, like, there's nothing like that in the actual film. Nope. Then there's this one moment, and then afterwards you can't just, like, it's always in the back of your mind, if not at the fucking forefront of your mind. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And I'm still trying to reconcile those pieces of the of the latter fourth with the other pieces of of the the prior three no, fourths. I mean the the I think that is definitely what I was getting at earlier yeah. when I mentioned about it that this film has this scene that pops up and even if the idea of him wanting to sexually be involved with her which may be the only reason why he continues to try to hang out with her mm. probably an underlying reason yeah. obviously but at the same time 
um, him just deciding just to push the mirror away and push her down and hold her down. And then eventually the only reason why he doesn't rape her is that she knocks him out with a piece of furniture and then she's continuously apologizing. Like, there's nothing in the rest of the film that is anywhere in the same ballpark. Absolutely of that. not. And it's so... Well, the other thing I would say, too, yeah. is that about that scene is that what's so bizarre about it, besides the politics at play, is that... Before and after, like what you're saying, that there's nothing else like it. I wasn't put off by the rape in and of itself mm-hmm. because I thought they had kind of established him as a slightly pathetic person mm-hmm. who was not taking no for an answer. So I could have seen that as a destination on his journey with mm-hmm. regards to her. Yeah. Obviously, if they had dealt with the true ramifications of an arc like that, then I probably would have actually loved it or something but like that. But instead, I feel like they were just they, – they attempted to, to... – um, probe into this sort of like taboo, sort of like uh, 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 not sort of sen- sensationalist kind of kind of rep- like uh, event, and then to totally sidestep the actual material consequences of that event in order to absolve their 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 protagonist of fault and still carry him on to this hero's journey of eventually becoming the first man in space. And I'm just like, why the fuck did you even have to have this scene in the first place i get it's a destination on but it's just like it's it's well no but the way that they handle it is just so is is so like ham-handed right and what i was gonna say that as to why i think it does stand out outside of it's just bizarrely dark turn Mm -hmm. uh met then with its bizarrely about face (laughs) absolving whatever is that up until the rape scene um i feel like what makes it grossly out of place is the fact that there's nudity in it like this is not a comical rape scene so like if it had been and i'm not saying this would have made it better but i feel like i would have understood where they were coming from in 1980 whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, but if this had been a more something that happened all the time during the 80s, but like a comical minor sexual assault scene where someone leans in for a kiss and like doesn't let go of that or someone grabs somebody's ass or Mm -hmm. whatever. But like up until this... more gratuitous. Yeah. I mean, the movie had been pretty chaste up until that point. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's... This is a naked woman. Oh, her breasts are now wiggling in the air. He's holding her down practically by her mouth. Like, mm. this isn't just a, oh, friend misreading and or uh, intentionally misinterpreting mm. signals. This is the, you know, the rapist that you meet in the alleyway. And, and, mm. and, and the fact that, that, and I'm not saying it would make it better if it was slightly more uh, whatever, but that's what's so bizarre when you're watching it. Uh, I feel that like it plays that way. I feel like it's mm. a, it's a it's a mar on an otherwise like an otherwise very impressive film, and I can totally understand. And I would never fault someone for the fact of if if they were to watch that same scene and be like, I can't watch this film anymore. I'm just like, I would not blame somebody for for just outright rejecting it out of hand. Um, it's like because like even I'm myself as a 
speak, spoken as a sort of like a fan of the world building of the animation of this film, that scene alone is just like, it's got me like cringing. And I'm just like, I, I don't know what the, I'm somebody who reads a lot about anime. I watch a lot of anime. I write a lot about anime. And I, even I'm just like at a loss of being like, I don't know well, what to the, tell you. The, the, the other aspect of, of the scene that follows the attempted rape. Yeah. That's of, even, of, that's, that you have. It's arguably worse. Can I just say it's so weird that we're having this conversation about a movie that I did not pick? Well, yeah, right? Yeah. Good point, Nick. Good point, Nick. But um, you have uh, seven dudes, I'm assuming, writing a woman just constantly apologizing to somebody for uh, them Le- raping her. Yeah, and it's apparently like, it was her fault for leading him. And I'm just like, fuck. fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just like, if this is not like, this is like, like, a, a, like, a, like a, a snapshot time capsule of toxic masculinity in just like... Like, this is like, this is uh, me putting this on somebody, but like, it would seem like somebody who wrote a like super bad online review about the female Ghostbusters would have this in their film of being like, oh, I'm so sorry that I uh, was wearing a robe that let you see my ankles and then you had to rape me. Like, fucking god damn it. Yeah, right. It just, oh my god, yeah. Also, he did that while there was a child in the room. Yeah! It just keeps getting worse. It just keeps getting worse. Oh well, it's my animated, god. so it's not really child porn. Oh my god. Stop saying that. Oh my <laughs> I only god. Said it once. Oh my god. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. We can, we can move on from it because there is a lot more here, like you were mentioning, Tucson. But right. that scene, um, unfortunately, for me at least, um, is, gonna is, be is, a, is what I remember about this movie. I know. And it's like, damn, it sucks. Because like otherwise, I really just... Um, I'm more curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are on this film. Because I already know what I like about it. And I've already sort of talked at length about it. Um, yeah, what's your read? Yeah. Um, I've maybe said this before, and I've definitely said it before off mic to Toussaint, which is that... Um, I would say I'm a casual anime watcher, which is to say that I've seen quite a bit, but certainly not a lot in any esteem. And yet, I've always been drawn to anime television, and anime films have always been hard for me to get into because, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because I have some kind of uh, distance from anime in general, I need a lot more time to truly get engrossed in a universe, no matter how good the world building is or good the characters are or whatever. So that's why some classics have fallen on my deaf eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, deaf eyes. No. <laughs> um, for example, like... I'm Your just... eyes can't hear. Mm. Can't hear it, yeah. Um, uh, I was not the biggest fan of the Ghost in the Shell movie, even yeah. though I certainly appreciated it, whatever. Yeah. Um, and whatever else. It's not for everybody. No, I can totally I mean, understand that. I didn't hate it by yeah. any means, but yeah. uh, so um but since then I've seen a few things. Obviously I do enjoy the occasional Miyazaki and um I while I didn't really like Paprika too much, I Tokyo Tokyo uh Perfect, Perfect Blue, Blue. Yeah. uh was definitely like the top peak of what I would want out of an anime film. Yeah. Uh I gotta say, having said all of that 
I am slightly surprised that I actually thought this was pretty great. Yeah. Um, I thought that while the word the world building was excellent, whatever, what mostly drew me to this besides that, because that was, I was more getting that out of the surface pleasure of like keeping me engaged. If my mind started to wander, mm-hmm. uh, I would just then start zeroing in on some of the backgrounds and some of the um, just kind of wonderful future past uh, architecture going on because I like how it, it, it's an alternative timeline of Earth, so therefore the future is both futuristic and yet also uh, archaic in some ways. Yeah, and I and I love those kind of visions of the future. But at the end of the day, what I really liked and liked the most about the movie was actually while I don't think the protagonist himself is like one of the best anime protagonists, whatever. I actually thought he was the glue that held this movie together mm-hmm. because I very much appreciated the very chill pacing of this film and how um, this movie is about the you know the importance of the this the space force that you know they're making whatever, but like that the actual action of that is saved for the last ten minutes and. The whole movie is really about getting into the emotional headspace of a character who, you know, pledged his allegiance to something he didn't believe in mm-hmm. and and saw no value in, which fell is, into it pretty much. Yeah, and not only that, but even the rest of the world didn't really either know it existed or care that it existed. Yeah. Um, and how one can try to find self worth in themselves or in the organization that they're giving themselves over to. How this bureaucratic pet project, um, basically between like private private tech private military contractors and like sort of the ingratiating like forces of having a a relationship to some of the higher ups in the actual government sort of birthed this sort of like little petri dish of a project that eventually grew into something much larger than itself yeah um but also how how his uh interactions with the other cadets or whatever you'd want to call them uh, kind of change over time, which is like, uh, uh, on the one hand, they can be kind of buddy-buddy, and on the other hand, there's some kind of uh, friction between them because of the kind of changing allegiance between whether he believes in what he's doing or whether he doesn't. And I kind of like how they all start to follow his lead almost slowly but surely when, you know, he was. And in no way does the movie ever set up a pivotal scene in which uh, the team gets all together yeah or that they just start believing in him or he starts believing in himself it is truly an actual culmination of past events and uh, past decisions made by him and the rest of the team that it almost becomes a foregone conclusion because of the fact that he had decided to basically step up and unlike a lot of movies of the silk uh, it actually does grapple with the fact that in life and sometimes in stories if they're you know complex that 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 there's not always a ground zero for the moment in which a character or a human being Mm -hmm. uh decides that they're going to put their best foot forward sometimes you just have to do it and catch up with it later and Mm -hmm. figure the out the why of it uh when you have time and when you're emotionally ready, but you know, doing that now will pay off later. And I think that's what we get here. And certainly there's, you know, that unfortunate scene. And every once in a while, there's maybe a moment or two where I think, uh, is it Shuri? Shirio. Shirio. Um, Shiro. Yeah. Shiro. I think there are moments every once in a while where Shiro is kind of regressing in a way that I don't know that the script, whatever, but, 
Um, in general, I just thought it was fascinating, and I just kind of enjoyed the fact that it was a very mundane and anime yeah. film, and not through his animation because that part was always pretty much stellar mm-hmm. and it was uh, eye-opening and whatnot. But there's so many scenes of them just dicking around in the shop and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And when I think back on this movie, like what I'm going to remember are like um, him. Uh, laying down on the catwalk grate up above everybody else, eating his lunch, and a few other random, you know, moments. uh, Or like them uh, uh, doing those kind of shots where they break the glass Mm -hmm. after they drink it and throw it into a fire. Like these kind of weird uh, camaraderie moments of peace and tranquility uh, in which people are kind of giving themselves over to the day-to-day minutiae of just living uh, while something much bigger is happening far off. Uh, And the last thing I'll say is that I will admit, by the time the movie was over, I could not give a shit about the, the Republic. Yeah. Because... I don't even remember them introducing the Republic no, in really, the first hour. It was sort of actually introduced. I'm sure there was like a throwaway line or two. It but. was introduced uh, via one of the television broadcasts that they were sort of like Ooh. holding the uh, the antenna around. Yeah, like, yeah I know. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's a strength of this movie that this movie is like good with without that. It's more this... about um, Shiro's personal journey <laughs> yeah. than it is about sort of the – um, the amassing political forces that are sort of aligned to either um, ensure or prevent that personal journey from yeah. its culmination. And and what I think saves that arc, uh, not Shiro's arc, but the, the, the warring fractions, or so to speak, is that when Shiro, uh, Shiro's blasted off into space and he completes his mission of just being able to do that that the actual conflict just ends because he got to do it he got there first like he got he got away and then they literally stopped to watch it because that has superseded any yeah. real political uh, machinations of what they were trying which to is do. sort of like the whole point of yeah. like what that, that I still think it could have been slightly <laughs> flushed out more mm-hmm. as to just who they were right. other than like they spoke another language. They were just a rival like, nation okay, that cool. was vying for territory in the yeah. same sort. Like there was already a demilitarized zone, so like they were obviously at yeah. war with one another, or sort of like at the fault line of war with one another. Yeah. But on the other hand, I also know that I probably don't want many more scenes with them because they were my least favorite part of the movie. So yeah. that's why overall, I still think the movie is pretty pretty great, actually. So yeah. So um, I am not a fan of anime. Yeah, so. we know. Just reaffirm that for anyone out there listening. Yeah. Uh, and I still am not a fan of anime. Um, That's I will, fair. I will say, though, um, I didn't think this film was 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 really that bad. Like, I thought that this was not necessarily for me. But at the same time, I actually was more engaged as the film went on, which mm-hmm. I think speaks to the quality of the story here. Right. And also, to I was interested in seeing the images that were coming up on screen. Uh, which which speaks to the quality of animation because the animation here is also quite good as well. Uh, even if the storyline and the animation is not my bag, I still could obviously see that there were quality on both aspects of, of that in this particular film. Um, I am always a huge fan of large 
kind of off the wall finales. So this film definitely delivered on that. And Mm -hmm. I think actually was by far the best part of this. Um, The idea of everyone just stopping what they're doing and just watching the rocket going off into space uh, is just a fantastic image as, as it just is just an encapsulation of everything that came before it in this film. This idea of this is what all these people are working towards. It's even mentioned early on by our protagonist in that kind of weird prologue where he's talking about how he went to school to be a pilot, but he sucks at doing this. So he's doing this now. Um, he went to join this weird space force uh, that, he it, didn't have the grades to make it into the Air Force, but he had the grades to make it into the Royal Space Force. Because it's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, oh, this man. movie reminded me of Gattaca, by the way. So, mm. Literally from the opening frames where a guy who doesn't quite realize that his destination will be up there, mm. no matter how badly he either wants it or doesn't want it, yeah. but just the whole looking up and then me pretty much figuring out that's the arc of this movie yeah. is getting him from there to, to there. there. Yeah. Uh, it just gave me a Gattaca vibe, not because they have the same plot. Oh, no, no. But yeah. anyway. so, so our prota- Aspirational. Yeah. Yeah. Our protagonist, though, um, it's very interesting because like with a lot of other people who are the first to do something... Um, there's not a long line of people trying to be selected for this as probably going to die if you do this. So, and he obviously is a bit of a simpleton, I would say. So he takes this upon himself as he has this, um, I, I don't know if there's any sort of underlying higher power calling qualities happening here, but I'm sure that someone could try to read that if they wanted to look into it that way. But he moves along throughout the film, um, and it obviously is somewhat conflicted, but at the same time, uh, it's hard for me to look back and, and really remember for sure anything particularly that our protagonist throughout this film is one way or the other settled on, as I feel like there's so much going on throughout this film that it was a little bit hard for me to really gauge exactly what his character was doing while he was progressing throughout the stages of this film. But I will say where we do end up, even if it is a little bizarre and I'm completely with you, Nick, that I was trying to figure out where these other people came from in the last scene, even though it looked great. I was like, why are there all these different planes that are falling apart and there's tanks crossing over and I mean, it, I was slightly bewildered from the moment the assassin that they sent over yeah. showed up just because that was such a weirdly, I don't know, small scale thing mm. for what apparently they would invade an entire country for. <laughs> you know, it was like, I guess they just wanted to start small and then go big or go home. But they yeah. didn't really, really just wanted to delay um, the Space Force actually launching. And if, since Shiro was the only person that was actually qualified or trained to do that, like, they figured, well, before we actually, like, expend all this... Yeah. If you can take out him, you don't have to take out you don't, the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes if sense. If you win this battle, you win the war. Right. Yeah. It just... It just it, when it starts, it just starts. Like, oh, yeah. it goes from zero to 60. Yeah. Which I quite enjoyed, yeah. even if I didn't fully get behind everything that was happening on, on screen with it. So, I mean, that that's basically my reading on it, is uh, I think overall, story-wise... Uh, 
was a little over the place and uh, not necessarily my bag, but um, uh, there were some great images here. Like some of the scenes, even small things like just the look of the lights up on the rocket. It's it's parked waiting to be shot off, you know, hours later. Um, also, by the way, moving up and skipping uh, tests for rockets first time. Terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot about this that I could understand why anybody would uh, enjoy watching this. Um, but at the same time, I actually think the opposite is true, too, where anyone could watch this and be like, ugh. So, so uh, I'm going to give this a... Hmm, I'm going to give this a 4 out of 5. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is a great film, um, even with uh, the caveats that I do have towards it. And I can totally understand somebody not fucking with this film at all. I think that this is um, this is this is a canonically great like anime film, and I feel like it, for all the reasons that one might not want to watch it, I feel like those only contribute to the conversation of how do we actually contextualize this um, this work within a larger continuum, and how its its very existence actually signifies the. Um, the birth of a studio that would go on to actually like irrefutably like have a huge impact onto the trajectory of like anime's like aesthetic and like um, tonal evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was pretty great. This was the first movie besides perfect blue that you've shown me Toussaint that I would actually readily watch again Im- immediately, so to speak. So um, I think it's the characters are uh, are pretty great. Um, I feel like I'm almost at a four, but I'm going to give it a three and a half out of five. And the only thing that's keeping me from that, because I very much enjoyed this, is that while I, gr- I love the spectacle of the last half hour, I feel like that's also when the character arcs for just about everyone who's not Shiro... Uh, Shiro. What's his name? Shiro. Shiro. Shirotsuki. Mustache. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I feel like that's when the character arcs for everyone who's not him start to literally spiral out of control. Uh, in service of him, and that's not a great look for a movie. Uh, often, but um, and I still don't quite. Uh. It's not often I'll say this, but I I just it went over my head as to the significance of showing that montage at the end of the history of the world. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I can make <laughs> conjectures as to the thematic heft of the placement of it in the finale, but once it was over, I'm like, okay, like, uh. Only because the movie up until the last half hour was such a chill character study, mm-hmm. so for it to go that far out of its orbit <laughs> um, to, I guess, signpost its significance of that moment, I just feel like if we had only gotten uh, Shiro in space with his monologue as the citizens below went on with their lives, like that would have spoken volumes as just as much as a uh, an opening, or I should say, a montage that looked like the opening to the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, that that was a slightly weak point. But they built I, the pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, sung by bare naked ladies. Oh my god! Um, but I that said, uh, as soon as that moment is over, though, it, it got me right back into it because I absolutely love the moment of uh, of what's her name out in the open. Uh, handing out the flyers Chicken. again, yeah. As the, I guess is it the is it snow or is it the embers of the space rocket, like uh, debris? That's up to, that's up to okay, yeah. yeah. I I love the weathered effect of whatever is falling as it kind of paints the world anew, literally. Uh, so yeah. So I uh, I'm right down the middle on this film actually with a two and a half out of five. I I, I as I mentioned I. I really appreciated the animation here. I think it, it's really, really well done. And uh, as I, we talked about uh, just a couple episodes ago, well, yeah. it's been a little more longer than that. But we talked about when we talked about Lion King and Aladdin. The actual animation is, is something that has, uh, for the most part, gone by the wayside. So at least cell animation, yeah. yeah. Not according to Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. Oh okay. yeah, let's not talk about that. Okay. That just don't piss me uh, anyways, uh, so seeing any animation from any era prior to you know like two thousand and five uh, is, is always wonderful to see. Um, and and here the story wise also too definitely had its peaks and valleys for me. So it's a two and a half out of five for this film, and I will not try to pronounce the name. Raw Space Force Wings Hanumis. Thank you very much, Tucson. Always yeah. coming through in the clutch. Yeah. So if you out there I always want to say the wings of Holland days. Mm, good sauce. <laughs> Great sauce. If you out there uh, have any thoughts on these three films, or um, if you have any fond memories of uh, our podcast that you'd like to share with us, always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Or if you have a ranking of all 200 episodes, please send it on. Ooh. Mom. That's pretty good. I'm kidding. Do you have to listen to this? Yeah, it's probably for the best. So, so. Uh, you can always catch our episodes on our website on filmtankshow.com. Or you could try to find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. Or you can find us on Apple, Podcast. Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher at Film Tank Show, and always feel free to rate or review our podcast, as that is always a uh, awesome thing to do for us. That's another thing that our podcast witnessed. We witnessed the death of iTunes. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty recent, but yeah. Yeah, yeah no, we, we outlived. Yeah, we outlived. No, oh, well, not, not, not really. <laughs> yeah, but still. Yeah, well, we will. Apple's doing okay. Yeah, I am. No. Yeah. No? Yeah. Okay. Steve Jobs is gone, and they're pretty much out of business. Yeah, and their chief designer is actually leaving, too. Yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, that's yeah, fine. Financially, I mean... Yeah. Anyway. They're okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, it's been a fun episode, a fun day hanging out with you guys, and it's been a fun first 200 episodes, so hopefully um, many more to come. Here's the 200 more. <laughs> that's nice. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> oh, God. So, from that voice, Nick Cheney, also Tucson Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much, as always, for catching up with us here at Film Tank. We'll be catching up with you again next time. Peace.